Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. English-born Anthony Ellis had all the credentials he needed to write and produce and direct radio's frontier gentlemen. Journalist J.B. Kendall, who roamed the western United States in search of stories for the London Times, was Ellis's creation, and some of the fictional characters that Kendall encountered were more colorful than the historical figures. The soon-to-be-late Cole Williams may be based on Confederate guerrilla leader William Quantrell, who died at age 28 after being wounded in an ambush by Union troops. But the story at hand is actually more about the people around the fading gunman. Starring John Daner, this is Frontier Gentlemen from November 9, 1958. In Missouri, I saw a thousand people come to witness a living man's funeral. Frontier Gentlemen Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West As a reporter for the London Times He writes his colorful and unusual stories but as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now, starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. Prior to the war between the states, Cole Williams and his band of Missouri Irregulars terrorized Kansas. He was reported to have been mortally wounded in his last monstrous raid, but his body was never found. So when I heard that a man said to be Cole Williams was dying in the river town of Batesville, Missouri, I traveled 300 miles in four days on the chance that I might get to talk to him. I found the man under personal guard of the sheriff in a room at the hotel. No, mister, I'm not letting anybody in that room who don't belong here. But, Sheriff, I'm a newspaper correspondent. It don't make no difference to me. My name is Kendall. I write for the London Times. It still don't cut anything with me. I ain't wearing him out on no newspaper man. Then will you answer a few questions? You ask them, we'll see. Is the man really Cole Williams? Don't know yet. We all know this fellow around here is Bill Adams. We're waiting for someone who knew Williams to make sure. You say you've known him as Bill Adams. Does that mean that he's been living in Batesville? Uh, Twelve miles east of here. He's been working him some ground out there enough to keep himself fed. I see. Comes to town about twice a year. Hard for him, you know. How's that? He's crippled. Oh? Mm, got a bad hip. Had it ever since he first come here. Barely get on a horse. How'd that happen? Never said. Always kept to himself. I should think as sheriff, you no, inquire. No, you're wrong there. Next question. How old a man is he? Mm, Doc and I figure about uh, 38, maybe 40. He won't tell us nothing. Well, this rumor that he is Cole Williams, just how did that start? Somebody left him outside my office four nights ago. Hey, what? That's right. He was real sick, and they just rode off and left him there. He'd stuck a note in his pocket saying he's Cole Williams. We don't know any more than that. Well, do you have any idea who brought him? We suspect a writer who's been seen going to Adam's place every now and again. 
man probably come calling and found Adams where he is. Hmm. Is it true this man is dying? That's what the doc says. It's the rots. Rots? Swelling on the side of his chest, sore looking. Well, what does the doctor say it is? The rots. You don't know any more about it than I do. Sheriff, may I... Would you let me in to ask him a few questions? No, I won't. But why? Are you through with me now? Well, he's able to talk, isn't he? Sometimes. It ain't that. Well, then may I just look at him? Did you know Williams? No. Then you ain't going in. I figured to keep him alive. Only persons to get in there is going to be them who knew Williams. I got important people coming. Official people. If he really is Cole Williams, there'll be a lot of questions they'll want answered. Army men, I presume? Them and others. Mm. Officials from certain towns in Kansas? Them in particular. Yes, sir. I figure a lot of people from over there are going to want to know why he done them things. Why he and his men tore up their towns. Do you think he'll tell? Don't know. But he's dying. Maybe that'll make a difference. No, sir, Mr. Kendall. I'm going to keep him alive to find out. Now, you get on downstairs with the rest of the boys. The town of Batesville was beginning to swarm with people, some coming from as far away as Dodge City in response to the rumor of Williams. I felt myself fortunate in securing the last available room at the hotel. My window looked out onto the street and I saw a group of army officers ride up, dismount, and go into the hotel. The first of the sheriff's important men had arrived. Knowing that if the man turned out to be Williams, my story would be of the greatest interest to American papers beside my readers in England. I decided to find a man to take my copy to Kansas City, the nearest wire terminus. In the saloon, I found a grinning little man with two of the requirements I needed, one of them being that he was drinking pure water. He followed me to my room to talk over my offer of a job. My name is Kendall. What's yours? Bandy is all I ever heard. <laughs> What kind of job you got for me? Mr. Bandy, I presume you're aware that a man said to be Cole Williams is dying in this hotel? I heard it on the trail. Thought I'd come on over and maybe get to see him. I don't really want no job till it's over. Uh, sit down, Mr. Bandy. Oh, ah, chairs is for dudes, Professor. I'll just hunker down here on the floor if it's all the same to you. Now, I want you to... Uh, I presume you ride, Mr. Bandy. Oh, horses, give me them legs, Major. Well... Is it worth $25 to you to ride to Kansas City? I'd ride from here to California for that, but I ain't going till this Williams thing is over. Why, he was just about the biggest killer Missouri ever had. If I'm here when he dies, <laughs> I'll have something to talk about on the trail for a long time. Oh, sir, you, uh, you better get yourself another man. Well, I write for a paper, Mr. Bandy, and I want you to take my dispatch to Kansas City when Williams dies. Yeah, then we got another problem. It depends on how soon it happens. Why? Well, if he hangs on in the next week, we're smack into my drinking month. Uh, well, I don't quite understand. But... My old mother taught me. She said, son, if you lay off drinking every other month, the old scamper juice will never get you. And she was right. Oh, I see. Well, then we've got... Six days, 19 hours, Major. 
After that, I won't know a horse from a hyena until the month's out. Yes. Well, there are other things you can do for me in the meantime, Mr. Bandy. And you will be one of the most important men in this whole affair. The little man's eyes lit up as I outlined his duties. He was to circulate among the crowd and bring people to my room who might have knowledge of Cole Williams. He agreed and left happily. I went back up to the dying man's room where I tried once again to gain entry but was stopped by the inomitable sheriff. The army men came out shortly and I asked them if they had been able to identify him, but they refused to talk to me other than saying he would not admit to being Cole Williams nor, of course, to any of the crimes attributed to Williams. I went back down to the lobby just as Bandy was starting up to find me. Hey, uh, Fisher, uh, I got something for you. Oh, yes, Bandy, what is it? You see that prairie hen sitting over there? Oh, well, this crowd, Bandy, I... No, well, I... you ain't looking where I'm pointing. Over there, see? Oh, yes, yes, what about her? Talk to her. I heard her telling the sheriff's men she'd know Williams. But they was too busy to pay any attention to it. Good work, Bandy. I'll talk to you later. Uh, pardon me. May I, may I get through here, please? Thank you. Uh, madam, I wonder if I could talk to you a moment. No, please. Leave me alone. I'm a newspaper correspondent. Uh, I understand you'd be able to identify Cole Williams. Why, yes. Yes, I can. Those men wouldn't let me go up. Can you get me into the room? Possibly. Well, how is it that you would recognize Williams? He killed my husband. I'll know if it's him. She was pretty, in her middle thirties, and dressed all in black. I persuaded the sheriff's deputies to allow her to go to the dying man's room. The sheriff himself took her in while I waited in the corridor. When they returned, she was sobbing quietly, and he signaled me to take her downstairs. Instead, I offered to let her use my room to compose herself, and she accepted gratefully. I'll sit here. Thank you. You're very kind. Twelve years I've waited to see Cole Williams dead. Twelve years. I was just sure this would be him. Are you certain it's not? This man's old and wrinkled. It's terrible to wish to see a man die. But I... I can't help wishing it were him. Would you... Could you tell me about it? I suppose a woman like me has no shame left. Traveling all this way. Hoping to see a man die. You're from Madison City, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. How did you know? The things that happened there. I would say it was no lack of shame that drove you here. It was horrible. Two hundred of them. Beautiful morning. And two hundred murderers rode into our town. And he was the head of them, yelling at them, cursing them if they didn't kill fast enough for him. And he rode up to our house. Our house. And he had a smile on his face. While my husband went for his rifle, I ran out. And for a second I had hope because the man had a smile on his face. And he was 
He was wearing a flower in his hat, and I saw him stop and look at my garden. And he told his men not to ride across it. And I had hope. And he looked behind me, and his face changed. There was a shot. I screamed and turned and saw my husband, my lovely young husband, with blood running out of his mouth. He died while I shouted at the man. The man who wouldn't step on my flowers. She was silent then for a long time. And in the darkening shadows, I walked to the window and stared out onto the street. I don't know how long I stood there, but it must have been some minutes, because when I turned, the woman had gone, and Bandy was rushing into my room. Hey, Professor, you better get upstairs right away. The man's just been identified. It's Cole Williams, all right. It's him. Fifteen minutes behind the wheel. That's all it takes to convince you that the 59 Plymouths really got it. Got the newest of new design, new sport car handling ease, new fury performance, new get up and go. Just tell your Plymouth dealer you want to sample the go. Then you turn the key and Plymouth's new Golden Commander V8 leaps into life. Now you just push a button and go on your way to the most fun-filled 15 minutes of your driving life. See your Plymouth dealer. Take your fun drive in the 59 Plymouth real soon. You really go, go, go for a Plymouth, and Plymouth will really go for you. For the first time since I'd arrived in Batesville, the crowd downstairs was silent. I knew that they were waiting for more news of Williams. I was on my way up the stairs when once again the sheriff stopped me. I can let you in a little later, Kendall. He won't talk to none of the people I've sent in there anyway. Then it is Williams? Oh, it's him, all right. His mother's in there now. Williams' mother? You remember the man I said we suspected of leaving Williams outside my office? Yes. He brung her. His name's Shad Barlow. Went to visit Williams, seen how sick he was, left him at my place and headed out for the old lady. Says he used to ride with Cole. Uh, they asked me to leave for a while. The old lady's crying gobs all over him. Where can I get a drink? Downstairs, Barlow. Uh, Mr. Barlow, I'd like to buy you a drink. I'd rather go someplace by myself, Mr. Well, how about my room, then? I have a bottle of good rye there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that'd be better than that saloon. All them vultures down there waiting for Cole to die so they can have a celebration. Chad Barlow was a tall man with arms that were too long. He seemed to welcome the grayness of my room so I didn't bother to light a lamp. As I poured him a glass of rye, he seated himself awkwardly in a straight-backed chair by the window and for a long time watched the street below. I told him my name, that I was a newspaper correspondent, and that I would welcome anything he would be willing to tell me about Cole Williams. He didn't seem to hear me, the crowd below in the saloon began their celebration. Suddenly he got up, 
walked to the dresser and poured another glass of rye. Kids out of school declare a holiday. Cole Williams is dying in our town. I, I should never have brought him in. I thought they'd help him. Will you tell me about him, Barlow? Why? Why should I? You're his friend. I'm a newspaper correspondent. Mm. It's been so long now, I guess it don't make no difference. You got to remember one thing, though. What'd you say your name was? Kendall. You got to remember one thing, Kendall. Yes? There was a war going on. I don't mean the big thing. I mean a long time before that, there was a war out here. Why, clear back into the 50s, there was raids. Kansans into Missouri, Missourians into Kansas, back and forth. What Cole done was to organize the sons. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Dead men fighting through their sons. I, I was just thinking. There ain't never been a better-looking Johnny Reb sat a horse and Cole. Nothing like what's upstairs. You'd never know that was him. Why, I've seen Cole charging down a hill, a hooting and a hollering and telling us not to worry that nobody could touch us. <laughs> oh, Cole, you know, he was a funny one. Always wore a flower stuck in his hat brim when we went on them raids. Said it brought him good luck. Why, that... The day we took Madison City, we all stood on that hill for ten minutes waiting for him to find a posy. Maybe it was good luck. I don't know. Told me one time he wore it on account of his brother. His brother? Sure. Yet a younger brother loved flowers. Growed a little patch of them on the side of the Williams house. Then one day the Red Legs came, the, the Kansans. They come riding in this day and tromped all over the kids' flowers, mean-like. Just looking to jayhawk somebody. Cole's brother ran out to tell him to get. And they shot him down. Cole was, what, 26? 25 or 26. He was away, and when he come back, well, it sure made him mad, real mad, for a long time. But I guess he's got over that by now. Has he? Um... Just wishing now I hadn't come to see Cole. That he just died out there at his place all by himself. Why? He was your friend. Oh, and people downstairs. Most of them are glad he's dying. They just come to make sure. Yeah. Besides, I'd kind of put them years away. Like a saddle you don't use anymore. If you go and get it out, you find the tree all shot and full of wormholes. When he dies, what'll they do with him? I mean, it, it won't be a law planting, will it? I don't know. Sure wish I could take him. You? Sure. I'd take him, I'd give him a laugh. He used to always say, boys, if it happens to me in this next fight, do me a favor and throw me in a hole in Kansas. That'll teach him. <laughs> <laughs> then he'd laugh and we'd go on in it. But I don't suppose they'll let me have him, will they? I doubt it. Maybe I'm just drunk, Kendall. Your bottle's nearly dry. Can I buy you one? No. No, thank you. Funny. It's funny how wrong a man can be. I, I thought I'd be getting cold something decent. Not, not this. He don't need me no more. I'm getting out of this town. 
Just remember one thing, Candle. There's two sides to everything. Don't let these Cayuse killers stampede you. No, I won't. I watched from the window as Shad Barlow slowly rode out of Batesville. At the end of the main street, I thought he turned and looked back, but it was too dark to be sure. Concerning the actual death of Cole Williams, I can say this. There was much speculation in the saloons and streets as to whether he would admit to his crimes. I was there when he died, and for the second time since I'd come to Batesville, the town was silent. The room was crowded with men waiting for an admission of guilt or at least some sign of remorse. His mother was there, a tall, spare woman. Ma, Ma, are you still there? I'm here, Cole. Don't try to talk no more. Just lie quiet. How's brother? Is he gonna live? Cole never done a thing. All these people standing around. He was the best boy a mother could ask. Don't cry, Ma. Brother will be all right. Red legs didn't give him no chance. But don't cry. I'll fix him. I promise. Promise, I'll fix He's gone. Let him know in the street. The tired woman walked out of the room while someone signaled to the street that Cole Williams was dead. Getting away from it all is a big part of everybody's dream. Still, nobody wants to come back from a weekend like Rip Van Winkle so completely at sea about what went on during his absence that he couldn't find a place for himself in his old hometown. Well, fortunately, you don't have to come back from a Rip Van Winkle, no matter how far you go from civilization over Saturday and Sunday. Take a radio with you, and wherever you are, whatever you're doing, CBS Radio will tune you in on the world you've left behind. With your dials set for your local affiliated CBS Radio station... The CBS News Department brings you fast, efficient, comprehensive reports at regular intervals all week long. CBS newsmen all over the nation and the world are trained and seasoned at sifting the trivial from the important. Make CBS Radio your window in the world while you're on your weekend jaunts, and you won't have to pay any penalty on your return for getting away from it all for a while. Frontier Gentlemen was produced and directed by Anthony Ellis. Tonight's script was written by Tom Hanley and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Harry Bartell, Richard Perkins, Joseph Kearns, Virginia Gregg, Helen Klebe, and Jack Moyles. Join us again next week for another report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Bud Sewell speaking. Drive with care. Nobody has a life to spare. This is the CBS Radio Network.
That was Frontier Gentleman from November 9th, 1958. The name of the story, Holiday, definitely some irony there, with John Daner as J.B. Kendall. The music for the series was by Wilbur Hatch, famous for some very different music that he provided. That was for TV's I Love Lucy. Also involved in the music-making, Jerry Goldsmith, who went on to write music for a lot of Hollywood films, including the Star Wars franchise. Goldsmith also played the opening trumpet theme for Frontier Gentlemen. Stay right there for the great Gildersleeve here on Skywave Audio Theater. Sometime in the 1920s or 30s, the Portuguese-American actor José Pereira da Faria became Harold Perry. In 1932, Perry moved from the San Francisco area to Chicago, where he became a regular on the Fibber McGee and Molly show as Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. In 1941, that role led to a spin-off series, The Great Gildersleeve, and one of radio's biggest hits it was. The series had the advantage of a solid cast that stayed with it for years, Lillian Randolph and Walter Tetley, and for several years at least, Lorene Tuttle. You're going to get to hear a young Gildersleeve in this flashback episode from November 15, 1942. Kraft presents The Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> yeah. Company, who also bring you Bing Crosby every Thursday night, present each week at this time Harold Perry as The Great Gildersleeve, written by John Whedon. We'll hear from The Great Gildersleeve in just a moment. You know, these are the mornings when waffles or pancakes really hit the spot. And you need hearty food this crisp fall weather to start the day off right. Well, waffles and pancakes taste mighty good when you spread them with delicious parquet margarine before you pour the syrup on. You see, parquet margarine is the spread made by Kraft, and it has a delicate, appetizing flavor that's just about tops. Yes, parquet is entirely different from old-time margarines, and you can tell the difference the minute you taste it. Parquet is a wholesome, nourishing vegetable margarine made to Kraft's high standard of quality. You'll find parquet margarine is grand for every use, as a spread for bread, a flavor shortening for baking, yes, and for pan-frying, too. And remember, parquet margarine is a fine energy food and a reliable source of vitamin A. So order a pound or two of economical parquet margarine tomorrow. Just ask your dealer for parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y. Parquet margarine made by Kraft. Summerfield and the Great Gildersleeve. There's a snap in the air these days and a touch of football. It's the kind of weather that makes a man want to be up and doing. And sure enough, at 10 o'clock in the morning, we find Gildersleeve arriving at his office ready for big things. Good morning, Miss Fitch. Good morning, Mr. Gildersleeve. How's business this morning? Just about as usual. There was a young man in to see you. Oh, yes? Who was he? Uh, Mr. Brinkerhoff. He had a letter of introduction. Here. Uh, Brinkerhoff? I don't know any Brinkerhoff, do I? That I couldn't say. Yes, yes. The only Brinkerhoff I ever knew was a fellow I went to college with. And there was a Brinkerhoff who traveled for some wholesale house, but he was killed in a bus crash. It wouldn't be him. <laughs> I doubt it. Yes, yes. 
Of course, there's Brinkerhoff and Schultz, but I don't know anybody there, so I don't see who'd be writing to me. I wonder who it could be. Uh, may I make a suggestion? What's that? Why don't you open the letter and find out? <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> Excellent idea. <laughs> You're a wonderful woman, Miss Fitz. I don't know how I'd get along without you. Sometimes I'm tempted to try. <laughs> oh, it's from Brink. Brink? You know Brink? No, I don't suppose you do. But you've heard of him. He was All-American in 1919. All-American what? Halfback. He's the one who made the famous play against Navy. Oh, but maybe you don't remember it. It was in the last quarter, about one minute to go, and we had the ball on our own ten-yard line. Here, I'll show you. Bend over. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Bend over. I'm Brink, and you're playing center for Navy. Oh, no, I'm not. Well, I'm just trying to show you. What's the matter with you? <laughs> anyway, that's the fellow. Imagine me getting a letter from him. You see, it's addressed to me personally. Dear Tubby. Dear Tubby? I used to be a little stout. <laughs> Wait till I show this to Hooker. I bet he never got a letter from an All-American. Oh, he says here, Tempa sure does fugit. I'd give my right arm to see you again, you old son of a gun. Uh, this is me he's writing to. He says, maybe you and me can get together at reunion sometime and have a good old chin fest. You and me. Uh, this man went to college. It's, it's all American. It's scholarship. Then he goes on and he says, well, enough of such bourgeois. Bourgeois. This epistle will introduce my son, Larry, who has just graduated from the old alma mater and is now starting on his own out in your neck of the woods. Anything you can do to introduce him around and help him make contacts will certainly be appreciated. Well, I'll have to do that. I'll have to have him right out to the house right away. And look, look how he signs it. As ever, Brink. Good old Brink. What times we had together. Bye, George, I'll have the boy out tonight. I'll have him out to dinner. Get my house on the phone, will you? Yes, sir. Any son of Brink's is a son of mine. <laughs> Anybody home? Hiya. Uh, hello, Leroy. I got the paper. Can I have the funnies? Here. Where is everybody? I don't know. Bertie's out in the kitchen or someplace. Do you have to read it on the floor, Leroy? It's easier that way. Well, don't leave it there. Pick it up when you get through. I always do. Yes, you do. <laughs> Where's your sister? What? I asked you a question. She's in the hands of pirates. Marjorie, what are you talking about? It's not different. She's been trapped by river pirates. Uh, it's an old Jap. Could you tear yourself away from that Japanese junk long enough to tell me where Marjorie is? I don't know. She went out somewhere. The hairdressers, I guess. She's got a heavy date. Date? How do you know? She's been going around all afternoon with gunk on her face. Yes. <laughs> well, date or no date, she's going to have to postpone it. Uh, Marjorie? No, it's me, Mr. Gillespie. Oh. Uh, what have you been up to, Bertie? I just got back from marketing. It's a little late for marketing, isn't it? It was a little late when you called up about dinner. It's, oh, yes. Well, I'm sorry, Bertie. I couldn't get a hold of the man sooner. Did you get the pot roast? Mr. Gillsleeve, I've been all over, and there ain't a pot roast in Summerfield. Oh, well, that's a shame. Brink was particularly fond of pot roast, as I remember. He was the greatest man for meat and potatoes I ever knew. Present company accepted. Huh? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, what did you get, Bertie? Well, they had some nice liver. Oh, liver and bacon is good with French fried onions. Yeah, but you know how some people is about onions. How's that? They can't stand them, so I didn't get the liver. Oh, well. 
Perhaps it's just as well. They had some leg of lamb instead. Oh, lamb is good. You have plenty of other things with it. Mint sauce or currant jelly. Yeah, but you're liable to run into lamb every day of the week, so I didn't get the lamb. Uh, well, what did you get? Mr. Gilsey, if you like guinea hen. Guinea hen? Oh, now you're talking, Bertie, with nice stuffing and wild rice. And maybe some cream mushrooms on the side. Oh, wonderful. I love it. <laughs> Wish I'd know that. I'd have bought the guinea hen. <laughs> What? You didn't get it? No, not knowing the gentleman you invited for dinner, I figured I'd better play safe. Well, what did you get? Well, I figured I'd better get something that didn't take too long to cook in case maybe he was a little late. Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. What did you get? You know, something I could put on the fire after you got here. Something people like. Come clean, Bertie. What did you get? I got pork chops. <laughs> pork chops. Oh, I better be getting this stuff out to the kitchen. Here comes Miss Margie up the wall. Poor chops. Oh, well. Oh! oh look out there! Leroy, you have to lie in front of the door. Yes, young man. Why don't you watch where you're going? It, pick that paper up. Gosh, I can't tell me even do a little reading around here. Yeah, I did. Well, you're looking blooming, my dear. Oh, it looks terrible now, but I think it'll be all right when it's combed out. I had him cut it off a little shorter. It looks fine. Uh... I hope you didn't make any plans for this evening, my dear. Well, you know I have. Why do you think I had my hair done? I don't know why women have their hair done. It's just something that comes over them. <laughs> Uncle Mort, you knew I had a date. Yes, but... I stood dug up last Saturday because you asked me to, and I'm not going to do it again. What have you got against Doug? Nothing, nothing at all, my dear. It's just that this son of an old college chum of mine turned up unexpectedly, so I asked him out to dinner. Oh, fine, I'll be glad to have dinner with him, but after that, I... I'm sorry. But you don't understand, my dear. This boy is all American. What do you think Doug is? An Indian? <laughs> I mean, he's a football player. No kidding, Uncle. An all-American? Well, his father was. I don't care if his dad was president. I've got a date with Doug. Marjorie. Yes? It's not very often I ask you to do a thing like this, but I'm asking you tonight. This means a lot to me. I'd like to show this boy a good time. And I'd like you to help me. But, Uncle Moore... You like this boy, my dear. I, I haven't met him yet, but if he's anything like his dad, you'll be crazy about him. All the girls were crazy about Brink. He was a great, big, strapping fellow. Had a grip like a bear trap. Mm. He'd shake hands with you and your knees would turn to water. He must have been a, a charmer. Yes. Brinkerhoff was a hero to me. To me. <laughs> he was a hero to everybody in school. I remember in my senior year, the biggest weekend of the year. The day of the junior prom. The day of the big game. Well, you're both right. The weekend of the game with State was also the weekend of the junior prom. And I'd invited a girl down for the occasion. <laughs> a blind date. Uh-oh. You're wrong, Leroy. This girl turned out to be a Pippin. How did, you, how did you recognize her when you met her, Uncle Moore? It was all very romantic, my dear. She wrote me she'd wear a red hat with a green feather. And I wrote her I'd be wearing my raccoon coat, my beanie, and a chrysanthemum. <laughs> must have been quite a boy owning a raccoon coat. It belonged to my roommate. He was rich. But I, I'll never forget that day waiting down at the depot. There was a flock of us there. And as the train pulled in... Oh! Oh! Where is she? Where is she? She'll probably get off at the other end. Oh, a red hat. Uh, pardon me, miss. Are you addressing me, sir? Uh, my mistake. No green feather. <laughs> oh, there's a blue hat. And look what's under it. Ooh, I wish it was her. Oh, my goodness. Maybe she didn't come. 
Oh, wait. There's a red hat with a green feather. What a chassis. <laughs> oh, miss, are you by any chance Miss Betty Beaumont? Oh, yes, I am. Are you Mr. Throckmorton Gildersleeve? Uh, that's me in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fine you got here. Did you have a pleasant trip? Oh, it was catsy. Uh, here, let me get those grips and we'll go on up to the fraternity house. That'll be catsy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, you, you see this fella coming? Uh, yeah. That's Brinkerhoff, the captain of our team. Really? My buddy's handsome. Do you know him? Well, uh, sort of. Uh, hello, Mr. Brinkerhoff. Hello there. Oh, I mean, uh, hello there, Gildersleeve. Put it there. Yeah. <laughs> Ow! My hand. <laughs> Glad to see you, Brinkerhoff. <laughs> Miss Beaumont, I have the honor to present Mr. Brinkerhoff, the captain of our eleven. How do you do? Well, I'm mighty glad to know you, Miss Beaumont, I'm sure. Hey, can I give you folks a lift up to the campus in my car? Well, I... Oh, Mr. Brinkerhoff, that would be catsy. Uh, <laughs> just call me Brink, Miss Beaumont. All right, Brink. Can we ride up with Brink, Mr. Gildersleeve? Call me Tubby. <laughs> Could we, Tubby? Sure, Tubby. Come on. Hey, I tell you what. We can stop off the sweet shop and let Tubby buy us a soda. How about? <laughs> Gee, Brink, that would be catchy. <laughs> hey, by the way, what are you and uh, Betty doing tonight? Uh, tonight? Well, tonight I'm going to sing in the Glee Club tonight. Uh, me, 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 me. Tubby's quite a singer. Yeah. Say, Tubby, uh, how about letting me bring Betty the concert to hear you so she won't have to go along? You know what I mean, Betty? Uh-huh. How about it, Tubby? Gosh, Brink, thanks. What a pal. You think of everything. Now, men, you're going out on that field for that second half against State. The only way you can lose this game is if you all fall asleep. So I want you to play like you're behind. And that means fight. F-I-G... T, fight. Hey, Tubby. Oh, hello, Brink. Gee, you're playing a great game, Brink. Oh, that's nothing to what I'm going to do this half. Say, Tubby, uh, how about bringing Betty over the Sig Sig dance tonight, huh? Oh, gosh, Brink, I'd sure like to, but I can't make it. Oh, you can't, huh? No. Well, that's too bad. I fixed it with Coach Mulligan for you to play a couple of minutes in this second half. Oh, gee, no kidding. Yeah, that'll get you your letter, you know. It'll make you look like a hero to Betty up there in the stands. Oh, gosh, Brink, you sure are a pal. Yeah. You sure you couldn't change your mind about tonight? Uh, I'd like to, Brink. I'd sure like to bring Betty to that dance, but I promised my roommate we'd go with him and his cousin and spend the evening at his aunt's house. <laughs> oh, well, that's uh, too bad, Tubby. That's too bad. Huh? Oh, thanks, Coach. how I got my letter. If it hadn't been for Brink, the coach might have never put me in that game. Yeah, but how did you do in the game, Monk? How did it come out? Well, it was a funny thing about that. On the very first play, somebody clipped me from behind, knocked me down, and kicked me on the nose. <laughs> they carried me off the field on a stretcher. Gosh, were you hurt badly? Broke my collarbone. I was laid up in the infirmary for ten days. But do you know what Brink did? What? He took care of my girl for me all the rest of that weekend. <laughs> Uh, 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 Betty, she was a queen. That's the last date I ever had with her. 
After that, she went with Brink. Yeah, how did you know? Are you sure he wasn't also the one who broke your collarbone? Brink? Never. Brink was my pal. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, that must be young Brink now. Gosh, I can't wait to see if he looks like his dad. I'll go, my dear. Ah, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yes, come in. Come right in. By George, you're the spitting image of your dad. I'd know you any place. Yes, sir. Always glad to meet the son of Brink. Put her there, my boy. Glad to. Oh! My hand! <laughs> Chip off the old block, all right. <laughs> Greg Gildersleeve will be with us again in a few seconds. You homemakers are budget conscious these days, I'm sure. But none of you wants to sacrifice good nutrition for your family. Just keep the food budget in line. Well, you don't have to if you serve your family foods like delicious parquet margarine because they're thrifty and mighty nutritious, too. Yes, grand-tasting parquet margarine is an economical source of important food values your family needs. You see, besides tasting good... Parquet margarine is a wholesome, nourishing food. It's one of the best energy foods you can serve your family. And it's also a reliable source of vitamin A, because every pound of parquet margarine contains 9,000 units of vitamin A the year round. So serve parquet margarine as a spread for bread. Use it for cooking, too. Your family is sure to like its flavor. Yes, tomorrow, ask your food dealer for parquet, P-A-R-K-A-Y, parquet. The margarine that's made by Kraft. Now let's return to the great Gildersleeve, who has invited a few of his closest friends in for the evening to meet the son of his old college chum, Brink Brinkerhoff. Dinner is over, and our host beams with pride upon the little group of guests clustered about the young hero. But did that yeah. stop me? Not me. I doubled back, ran through the whole team, circled around right end for a good 30 yards, and would have made the touchdown if it hadn't been I ran into my own interference. Well, <laughs> a chip off the old block, all right, folks. <laughs> Mr. Brinkerhoff, I think that's the most exciting story I ever heard. Tell us some more of your experiences. <laughs> Speaking of college puts me in mind of a rather amusing little experience in my own youth. Oh, brother. The time we stole the clapper out of the chapel bell. <laughs> You know the old saying, boys will be boys. Oh. Well, sir, for some reason... Hey, Margie, come on in the den here. What is it you want? Who's that old geezer out there shooting off his face? That's Judge Hooker. He's a friend of my uncle's. Well, is he going to talk all night? Why don't he give somebody else a chance? <laughs> He's a very nice man. Well, he talks too much. Hey, what do you say we get out of this fire trap and shake these stale characters? These are my friends. Oh, come on, come on. Let's get out of here. I don't see how you can say that. After all, Uncle Mort invited all these people just here to meet you. Well, they've met me. They've had their thrill. <laughs> we don't have to stay here all night while that lame brain swipes the clapper out of the bell, do we? Well, that's good for three hours. Well. Come on. You and I could make beautiful music together, honey. They'll never miss us. Well, Uncle Mort did say he wanted you to have a good time. You see? That settles it. Uncle's orders. My car's right outside. <laughs> Good night, Mrs. Ransom. Good night, Mr. Gildersleeve. Good night, P.V. Well, Gildy, what do you suppose became of our young friends? They'll turn up, Horace. Don't be so nosy. 
That uh, young Brinkerhoff seems to be quite a fella. Yes, well, he takes after his dad. Brink always did have a way with the girls. Yeah, it's youth, I guess. Youth. Reminds me of the time I swiped the clapper out of the chapel bay hall. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I told you about that. More than once. Good night, Horace. Good night, Gildy. Uh, the old goat, you'd think he was the only man that ever stole a clapper out of a bell. <laughs> oh, two o'clock in the morning. Why, George is going too far. I'll tell that Brink. Look here, Brinkerhoff, I'll say to him. Friendship is friendship, I'll say to him. But enough's enough. We have a rule in this house, I'll say to him. When my niece goes out in the evening, I want to know where she's going, I'll say to him. And furthermore... Oh, I guess they're back. In about time, too. Well, thank you, Brink. I... Perfectly wonderful time. Brink? Hey, what's your hurry? The evening's young yet. I'll come in. We can scramble some eggs. <laughs> no, no, I'd love to, but I can't, really. I, I, I've got to get up early tomorrow. What for? What for? What do you got to get up for that's better than this? Answer me that. Oh, brother, chip off the old block. All right. <laughs> Please, I, I've got to go, really. Please. No, I don't take my foot out of the door till you give me a kiss. Oh, you going to start that again? We'll see about that. Marjorie! There, I told you. Coming, Uncle Mort. Good night. I'm sorry I'm so late, Uncle Mort, but there wasn't a thing I could do about it. Marjorie, where have you been? This wasn't my idea, remember? You said give him a good time. Uncle Mort, there's a man following me. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gildersleeve, I want to complain about your niece. She doesn't treat me right. Uh, Uncle Mort, if you don't mind, I think I'll run up now. I'm... I'm tired, and I think I'll just say good night. Yeah, good night, my dear. Good night, sugar. Good night. <laughs> uh, it's a great little girl you got there, Mr. Gildersleeve. She's a dilly. Yeah, she's a fine girl. A little difficult at times, though. Well, that's women, you know. You can't get along with them, and you can't get along without them. Uh, very good. <laughs> hey, speaking of Marjorie, uh, I wonder if you're going to be busy tomorrow, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yeah, Marjorie? Busy? Yeah. I wonder if I could drop into your office to speak to you for a few moments. Yeah. You mean about Marjorie? Yeah. Yeah, about Marjorie. Well, well, certainly. Always glad to see you anytime, my boy. Shall we make it around 11? 11. Suits me. Fine. Good night, Mr. Gildersleeve. It's been swell. Good night, my boy. Oh, wow, my hand. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> uh, great kid. Uh, Marjorie. Oh, Marjorie. What is it, Uncle Mark? I know a secret and I won't tell. I know. I don't know what you're talking about, Uncle Mort. And I'm tired. It, you can't fool your old uncle, but I won't tell. I don't know what you're talking about. Good night. Good night, my dear. Uh, pleasant dreams. Hello, Throckmorton. Uh, hello, Leela. I had a most enjoyable evening at your house last night. I want to tell you about last night. Hmm? You know Marjorie and young Brinkerhoff disappeared early in the evening. Uh, you noticed that. Well, I didn't like to say anything. Yes. Well, guess what? He's coming down to my office this morning to talk to me. You mean about? Uh-huh. Oh, I think that's so romantic. Yes, so do I. Why, who'd ever think little Marjorie? Why, she never even met him till yesterday, did she? That's right. It, last night. Mm. Of course, it's all up to Marjorie. I don't want to influence her, but 
His dad was one of my best friends at college. Oh, I think it's just wonderful. You know, I always longed for somebody to sweep me off my feet like that, but my husband, Beauregard, was such a cautious man. Oh, yes. He was a lawyer, you know. He courted me for three years till finally Father had to speak to him. (laughs) Well, hey, don't lose any time these days, by George. Yes, it happens so fast nowadays, you never know who'll be next, do you? Uh, next. I gotta be getting along. See you at the church, Lisa. Hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. Oh, hello, Peavy. Well, it looks as if I might be losing my little girl, Peavy. You mean Marjorie? Yeah, she and young Brinkerhoff slipped out early in the evening last night, if you noticed. Yes, I thought there was something funny going on there. Well, he's coming down to the office to talk to me about it at 11 o'clock. Is that so? Yeah. I suppose congratulations are in order, then. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to hate to lose her, though, P.B. Well, marriage is a great institution. I've had a good many years' experience with it. So has Mrs. P.B. <laughs> And I think we'd agree that your niece is making no mistake. Uh, you know, P.B., I've always regretted that I didn't marry. Have you, Mr. Gillespie? Yes, I've always felt somehow that I was missing one of the finest things in life. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Marriage has its conveniences and its inconveniences. Oh, well, of course, it's like anything else. It's a matter of give and take. More give than take. <laughs> I think Mrs. Peavy would go along with me on that, too. I know, but you've been married a long time, Peavy. Twenty-three years. So has Mrs. Peavy. (laughs) When you've been married as long as that, I suppose the novelty sort of wears off. Well, no, I wouldn't say that, either. (laughs) Mrs. Peavy still manages to spring a little surprise on me now and then. Only the other day, she presented me with a watch fob she crocheted for me. <laughs> Last thing in the world you'd expect. Watch fob crocheted. I take it all back, Phoebe. I'm glad I never got married. Oh, i got to be getting there. It can't keep him waiting. Goodbye, Mr. Gillespie. Uh, wait a minute. What did I come in here for? Uh, razor blade? No. Stamps? No. Uh, well, it'll come back to me. Goodbye, Phoebe. Goodbye, Mr. Gildersleeve. <laughs> Is he here yet, Miss Fitch? Is who here yet? Uh, the kid, young Brink. No one's been here. Were you expecting someone? Was I expecting someone? <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you don't know. No what? Uh, that young fellow who was in here yesterday, you know, the one I uh, said I couldn't see. Yes. Uh, little did I know. Uh, Miss Fitch, I think, I'm not sure, but I think he may going to be marrying my niece. No. Yeah. You know, I thought he was rather good looking. Looks just like his dad. A chip off the old block. Oh, little Margie, a wedding. Won't that be exciting? You know I love weddings. Yeah? And funerals. Uh, this may be him now. Well, good morning, Governor. Well, come in, my boy, come in. Nice of you to give me a little of your time. Not at all. Uh, I won't shake hands. <laughs> Always glad to oblige the son of an old college chum. Step right into my private office here. Thanks. Uh, Miss Fitch. Uh, will you please see that we're not uh, disturbed? Yes, Mr. Gildersleeve. <laughs> 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 Sit down, my boy. She's all right. 
Take the chair there. Uh, have a cigar. Oh, thanks. Don't care if I do. I always like a man that smokes cigars. There's a lighter on the desk there. Well, I guess if Marjorie knew that you were down here talking to me, she'd be kind of surprised, wouldn't she? You think a lot of that, Nancy. Yours, don't you, Mr. Gildersleeve? Oh, I think the world of her. She's a fine girl, Marjorie. I don't know a finer one. I agree with you. Uh, she's been a good niece to me, and she'll make a darn good wife to uh, somebody. I'm with you 100%. Say, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yes? Have you ever considered what would become of Marjorie in the event that you were to pass on? Huh? Now, I have an insurance policy here that'll be... Oh! You're just like your old man. You get out of here. You know, here in Summerfield, we've sort of prided ourselves on doing the best we could every time a scrap drive or a bond drive came along or anything that would help the war effort. But tonight, our hats are off to three other towns, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Freeport, Illinois, and Decatur, Indiana. In each of these towns, the Kraft Cheese Company has a plant, and those three plants have just been given the Army-Navy E Award for outstanding service in the production of food for our fighting men. Many manufacturers have been given this award, but this is the first time it has ever been presented to the men and women who help to make our Army and Navy the best fed in the world. We in Summerfield can't claim any credit for that accomplishment, but we can take pride in it, and we do. To you men and women of the craft company in Green Bay, Freeport, and Decatur, our hearty congratulations. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> music heard on this program was composed and conducted by Billy Mills. This is Ken Carpenter speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company and inviting you to tune in again next week for the further adventures of the Great Gildersleeve. A word for all you thrifty women who are trying to keep the food budget on an even keel. The product called Kraft Dinner is just your dish. For Kraft Dinner gives the economical way, the quick way to make delicious macaroni and cheese. Fluffy, tender macaroni drenched with cheese goodness. With Kraft Dinner, you make it in just seven minutes cooking time. You see, every Kraft Dinner package contains a special fast-cooking macaroni and an envelope of Kraft grated so that you can sprinkle in the cheese flavor in a hurry. And say the family will go for this thrifty, speedy macaroni and cheese. We'll tell you it's as good as any you ever baked in the oven the old-fashioned way. Why don't you get several packages of economical Kraft Dinner tomorrow? Have it on hand on the pantry shelf. A main dish ready in seven minutes is such a help on busy days. Tomorrow, ask your food dealer for Kraft Dinner. This program reached you from Hollywood. This is the National Broadcasting Company. An episode from the life of the college-aged Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. An episode about the son of a college chum coming to visit and, uh, you might say, quickly overextending his visit. The episode came from November 15, 1942. In 1950, Harold Perry was convinced to move to CBS, but his sponsor, Kraft, wouldn't stand for that. 
and Willard Waterman took over the starring role with a sound that bore an uncanny resemblance to that of Harold Perry. He even looked a lot like Harold Perry. We'll go ringside next with Screen Director's Playhouse here on Skywave Audio Theater. It may have been a favorite sport with radio writers and sound effects operators, those Foley operators right away in the studio could create a lot of drama with the sounds of a boxing match. As for actor John Garfield, he made a career of playing rebellious working-class characters, which came naturally to him because he grew up poor, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Garfield became a gang leader at one point and did some sparring in the boxing ring but it was his ability to mimic prominent actors of the day that eventually launched Garfield's acting career. This is John Garfield in Body and Soul, Screen Director's Playhouse from November 11, 1949. From Hollywood, the Screen Director's Playhouse. Screen Director's Playhouse star John Garfield Production, Body and Soul, Director, Robert Rawson. The Hollywood Screen Directors present a portrait on canvas. The motion picture drama, Body and Soul, starring John Garfield in his original role of Charlie Davis. heroes, the fighters, the contender, Jackie Marlowe, and the champ, Charlie Davis. Charlie Davis. If you've ever watched the prize fight, you've watched Charlie. His body reddening under the leather shock, the split lip and the crimson welt, the eyes tired, tired. This is the body of Charlie Davis, defending champion of the universe. You know Charlie. But his soul, the soul of the gladiator. That you don't know. That the crowd never knows. Take it, Sam, take it. He's getting in. Can't stop him. Try. Two time. Here it is, Sam. One. Time. Gotta get up. Gotta fight. They saw me out. Down the drain. All the years from the beginning. The amateurs. And Shorty. Pass the butter. Ah, here you are. Some fight, huh, Shorty? You see me, Coom? Wham, a knocker. So you KO an amateur stumble bum at a club stag. That makes you a champion? Oh, we're getting a free dinner out of it, ain't we? I'm doing all right. Yeah, you're doing fine. 
You love living with your ma on an east side cheese box. You love not having a job. You love the depression. Oh, yeah, you're doing great. I'm sorry. Rockefeller won't lend me no money. Oh, you're a fighter, Charlie. You can be a great pro fighter. Well, go and argue with my ma. She don't understand, Charlie. Well, she hates fighting, Shorty. She don't want me to fight pro. Here comes the speeches. Uh... Folks! The Iroquois Democratic Club has a big surprise for our own neighborhood champ, Charlie Davis. Uh, just a minute. The privilege, the privilege of a solo dance with Miss Iroquois Democratic Club. And here she is, boys. Here she is. Hey, Charlie, look at what you're getting. In a bathing suit, yet. <laughs> well, you gotta dance with her. Oh, now, wait a minute. Oh, wait till the boys at the pool hall hear about this. Okay, okay, don't push me. I'll dance. Um, Hi. Hello. I, uh, I ain't never danced with a girl in a bathing suit. They're watching you. Better put your arms around me. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, you're dancing. Yeah. And you know what? I like it. I like it. This is where I live, Charlie. Oh, Peg, uh, don't go in yet. Why not? Why, uh, I, I want to talk to you some more. All right. Tell me, how does it feel to be the amateur boxing champion of the universe? Oh, uh, there ain't no dough in it. Then you'll have to be professional champion of the universe. Oh, it's my ma. She don't want me to fight professional. She wants I should go to school, study. But you, Charlie, you want to fight. Well, that's what I was made for. You're made like a tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. Hey. I... Char... Sure, I'm a tiger. I got claws. But not for you, Peg. Not for you. Charlie, how about a game of snooker? No, Shorty, no, thanks. Oh, we won't be meeting Peg for another ten minutes. What are you so nervous about? Well, I take my girl to meet my ma for the first time. I got a right to be nervous. Charlie, your ma's a fine woman, but about the fight business, she don't know from Bosch. Lay off, will you, Shorty? She don't want me to fight pro, so I don't fight pro. So you don't bring any money into the house either? Your pa dead, you without a job? Uh, who's got a job these days? Ben Chaplin. He just won the championship. He's doing fine. Hey, look, Charlie, look. There's Phil Quinn over there, the fight manager. Hey, come on. Uh... Come on. Uh, Mr. Quinn? Yeah? I want you should meet Charlie Davis. Hello, Charlie. Uh... I've seen you fight. Yeah, pretty good, ain't he, Mr. Quinn? Not bad. Maybe someday he learns enough to make coffee and donuts. I'm not looking for coffee and donuts. <laughs> smart punk, huh? Maybe we make a deal, smart punk. No deal. I ain't fighting. Ah, beat it. You're wasting my time. Holy smoke, Shorty. I forgot about Peg. <sighs> okay, let's go, Charlie. I hope Ma likes her, Shorty. All, all through dinner, she'll ask questions. I can hear her now. And uh, where do you come from, Miss Bourne? And where do you come from, Miss Bourne? From Highland Town, Mrs. Davis. My father's a druggist there. Ah, professional man. Very nice. My Charlie, all he thinks about is fighting. He should be the world's champion nosebreaker. He'd make money, Mrs. Davis. He'd be the champ. So let him fight for something, not for money. 
Oh, sit still, Charlie. I'll go. Mrs. Davis? Yes? I'm Miss Tedder from the Community Charities. Oh. I'm so sorry to interrupt your dinner, but I'm just getting around to your application now. Ma, what is this? Uh, maybe Peg and I should leave. No, no, you sit here. What is this all about? Our charity requires certain information before we can help you people. Charity? Now, race, white, religion, Jewish, nationality, American. Get out of here. Get out. Charlie. Tell them we don't need any help. Tell them we're dead. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Get out. Oh, Charlie. Oh, Charlie, Charlie. I did it for you. You should be able to study. I'll study. I'll study how to make more money than you ever heard of. Shorty. Yeah, Charlie? Get me a fight from Quinn. Understand? I want money, money, money. Now get the fights, Charlie. You use your fists. Use them good and we'll make a lot of money. That's what I want, Quinn. Money. Lots of We're booked into Pittsburgh, Charlie. Next month it's Philly, then we head west. Give me a year, Shorty, a year to make the top. and all winners and lots of money. Well, this is it, Charlie. How do you like your New York apartment? Hey, it's big, huh? <laughs> the best class. <laughs> and fully equipped. Open that door. Why? Go ahead, the door. Go ahead. Well, you got a surprise for me? Peg! Hello, Charlie. Oh, <laughs> Peg, Peg. Tiger, tiger, Charlie. Oh, you... You what I've been fighting for. I... Ma! Ma, you're here, too. Oh, Charlie, you poor face. Oh, it's nothing. Souvenirs. Well, come on, Mom. Show me around your <laughs> Peg. Yes, Shorty? Peg, you and Charlie, you should get married right away. Have I got a rival? Yeah. Money, Peg, money. He won't listen to me anymore, only you. If you don't hold on to him, goodbye, Charlie Davis. Oh, marry him, Peg, marry him now. Ah, visitors already. Hi, Shorty, where's Charlie? Here. What's up, Quinn? Uh, big news, Charlie. You're in. So we got it? The big fight? It's being arranged. You're going to get a crack at Ben Chaplin. You hear that, Peg? Chaplin, the champ! Uh, Quinn. Yeah? Who's handling the contracts? Roberts. Roberts? He's a gangster. He's poison. Nobody fights for real dough unless Roberts gets cut in. He's the money, the real estate, everything. What's he want? Nothing much. Only Charlie... Charlie, they're cutting you to pieces. So what? It's only more money cut more ways, a bigger part. It's like giving away your right arm. Oh, what are you talking about? You're my right arm. You stay. Quinn stays. What about me, Charlie? Do I stay? Peg, you're my girl. Am I going to be your wife, Charlie? Well, sure. Sure, we'll be married, but not now. Now I got to train for the fight, arrange things with Roberts. Oh, you understand, don't you, Peg? 
I always understand. Oh, we need dough, more dough. I'll fight for it, Peg, and I'll get it. You'll see, me and my fists. We're going to get everything we want. You are listening to the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of Body and Soul, starring John Garfield in his original role of Charlie Davis, with Barbara Eiler as Peg Bourne. Charlie Davis, the champ. His stunned body pressed against the smooth canvas of the ring. With part of his mind, Charlie knows they're cheering for his defeat, cheering for Jackie Marlowe. And with another part of his mind, he hears the referee counting. Four! Gotta get up. Fight. Five! No use. Down the drain. Sold out. Roberts. Roberts. Mr. Roberts, Quinn tells me you want to talk business. You want to fight the champ? Uh, they tell me I got to work through you. Everybody works through me. The champ, everybody. All right, Roberts. How much will it take? 50% of you from now on. You're crazy. 50%. We split Quinn's end. You pay the rest. Oh, why don't you use a gun? Only when I'm double-crossed, Charlie. You want to fight Chaplin? Like paradise, I want it. And we do business my way. Okay. Fifty percent. Congratulations. We're partners now. That's all, champ. Huh? You can go now. Yeah. Okay, partner. I'll be seeing you. <laughs> Hello, Quinn. Your boy's set. I didn't tell him about that blood clot in Chaplin's head. What? So what if Chaplin does get killed? He owes me dough. He has to fight. I told him Charlie will hit light. But we don't tell Charlie. The crowd loves a killer. Roberts, look. Chaplin's still unconscious. What's wrong with him, Doc? I don't know. He's pretty badly beaten. I'd like a dressing room cleared. Sure, come on, he's all right. My boy. You hurt my boy. I'm his manager. I shouldn't have let him fight. You're getting paid, aren't you? You'd better leave. Yeah, yeah, anything I can do. Let me know. Anything. Come on, Shorty. No, I'll stick around, Charlie. I'll meet you later at the celebration party. Okay. Peg's expecting him. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. 
understand how Chaplin got hurt so bad. You promised to have Davis take it easy on my boy. What? Who promised? Have it your way, Shorty. I promised. Chaplin has a blood clot in his brain. But Charlie didn't know anything it's about business. this. We changed our minds about telling him. Chaplin shouldn't have fought. It was murder. Doc. Doc, what do you mean? He's dead. Dead. He was a good boy. A good fighter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm throwing a party for the new champ. Send me the bill for the funeral expenses. <laughs> be all right, won't he, Roberts? Forget it, Charlie. We'll talk about him tomorrow. Hey, here comes Shorty. Maybe we ought to talk about Chaplin now, Charlie. Why? He's dead. Oh, no. Dead? I killed him? No. No, your partner, Roberts, killed him. Chaplin was double-crossed. He had a blood clot. They promised him an easy go, but they didn't tell us. Don't listen to it, Charlie. You hit him hard, that's all. You hit him like a champion. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but we couldn't help it. Shorty... Who's been feeding you that stuff about a double cross? Oh, Charlie, get out. Get out now. We're infested with rats. What's the matter with you, Shorty? We're sitting on top of the world. You want to get out? Get out. But leave me alone. Charlie, he's your friend. Friend? Uh, Robert, you're drinking champagne, huh? Well, drink this for Chaplin. You shouldn't have thrown it in my face, Shorty. I got friends, too. Yeah. Uh, so long, pal. Shorty, wait. I'm going with you. Roberts. What's he talking about, that stuff about a double cross and an easy go? Forget it. Get it through your head, Charlie. You're the champ now. Well, that's Peg. What's happening out there? Shorty, are you all right? Peg. Peg, help me up. Oh, it was terrible. One of Robert's thugs started to beat up Shorty as soon as we stepped outside. He won't beat up anyone else. Charlie, you didn't hurt your hands when you hit him. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, you wouldn't want to hurt those precious hands. Shorty. I'm all right, Peg. Take care of Charlie. Don't let Shorty cross the street. He's hurt, stunned. Shorty, the taxi! Oh! Shorty! Oh, it hit him. He didn't see it. Shorty. Shorty. And everything you touch turns to blood. Charlie, you shouldn't drink so much. You've been on the bottle for two months. Why shouldn't I drink? I, I had three people. Three people that I love. Shorty is dead and pegged and... Ma, they don't want me, Roberts. They don't want me. Nobody wants me. Roberts... I need money. You're soft, Charlie. You can't fight anymore. Hey, give me give me an advance. I, I, I'll try. Sure, sure, Charlie. You'll owe it to me. Roberts, how'd you get into my apartment? I let myself in. Why? To give you 60 grand. 60? 
What for? The down payment for one boxing match with Jackie Marlowe. Marlowe's going to be the new champ. You mean... You mean I should throw the fight? Charlie, you're in a me for plenty. If you lie down, I call it square. And you get 60 grand besides your purse. And if I don't? You've got no choice, Charlie. But Marlowe, well, I could take that punk in two rounds. I don't want to force you, Charlie. You're finished. You're no good to me anymore. So I hand Marlowe the title, huh? Don't bother training. Marlowe will take it easy on you. Here's the money, Charlie. In this envelope. Fight's already announced. Tomorrow the bets go in. It's business. Bet your end on Marlowe. You'll be a rich man. Sure. I'll have everything I ever wanted. It's me. Oh, Charlie. Can I, uh, can I come in, Ma? Come in, come in. I, uh, I wanted to see you. I, I can't find Peg. Who is it, Mrs. De... Peg. How are you, Peg? Why did you come here? I, I missed you, Peg. Why? Because I love you. You loved Shorty, too, Charlie. Well, haven't I suffered enough? I was wrong. Okay, I was wrong. How long do I have to pay for it? Charlie, you've changed. I'm scared, Peg. I, I had to see you and find out. Do you love me? Yes, Charlie. I love you. She's waited a long time, Charlie. I've waited a long time, too, Peg. Oh, oh don't let go, Charlie. I'll, I'll fall down. Peg, Ma, I've got some great news for you. One more fight and I'm through. You stop fighting, Charlie? For good, and we'll be rich. Look, Peg, there's 60 grand to bet with in this envelope. No, Charlie, I'm taking it. Hey! If you lose it, then you want another fight and another. Mrs. Davis. It's Shimon from the grocery. Put the packages on the table, Shimon, and come see who's here. Huh? It's Charlie. Charlie, does the champion say hello to the grocer? Hello, Shimon. How are you? <laughs> oh, fine, fine. Oh, the champion. You're going to knock out this Jackie Marlowe, huh, Charlie? Oh, we'll see. Oh, good luck to you. And to my $5, I bet on the fight. Also good luck. Oh, you shouldn't bet, Shimon. No, everybody's betting on you, Charlie. The whole neighborhood. They're fools to bet. No, it's not the money, Mrs. Davis. It's our way of showing. In other countries... People like us have been killed and tortured because we're Jewish. But here, Charlie Davis is the champion. <laughs> so, Charlie, you'll win and still be champion, huh? Well, goodbye, Charlie, Mrs. Davis. Charlie, is something wrong? Ah, it's suckers like Shimon. They make me sore. Suckers? Didn't you understand, Charlie? Well, what do you want me to do? End up broke or in an alley with a bullet in my back? Bullets? What are you talking about? The fight's fixed. It's fixed. It's all arranged. I'm going to lose. So you don't understand what Shimon said. So does anybody look out for me? Poor Charlie, nobody looks out for you. You're both so high and mighty, but look, you took the dough, didn't you? You took the 60 grand. Here it is, Charlie. Here. Take it to bed against yourself. Take it all back. The happiness you've given me, the, the lonely nights, the long years, the, the stupid waiting... 
Go on, Charlie. Make more money. Throw the fuck. Counting me out. Finished. Sold out. Like Chapman. Marlowe. Cutting me to pieces. Roberts lied. Me, the champ. Seven. Charlie Davis. Eight. Counting me out. Getting up. Nine. Up. Up. Now, Marlowe. Now it comes. Now you get it. Take it, Marlowe. Take it for the whole lousy racket. Take it for Peg. And for Ma. And for Shimon. And for the lonely years. For the long nights. And the stupid waiting. Let her through. Oh, Charlie. Charlie, you were wonderful. Yeah, champ. You were great. Tough. Tough luck, Roberts. You're a big shot now, Charlie. I'll have to wait. I'll pay you off for this. Roberts, you can pay me off. Everybody dies, but you can't take it away from me. Are you all right, Charlie? Are you all right? Sure, Peg. I'm all right. I never felt better in my life. John Garfield will return in just a moment. Next week, as always, another great star recreates one of his most exciting roles on Screen Director's Playhouse. Our story is The Uninvited, and our star, Ray Milland, with Screen Director Lewis Allen. Now, here again is tonight's star, John Garfield. Thank you. Any realism you might have found in body and soul came partly because of a couple of ex-Eastside kids. A long time ago, they made some admirable efforts at beating each other's brains out in the boxing ring. I was one of them, and the other was the director of body and soul, Robert Rosson. Bob was a pretty lousy fighter, but he became one of Hollywood's most gifted writers and directors. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet Robert Rosson. Thanks, Johnny, but you know you weren't such a hot fighter yourself in the old days. Well, I licked you, didn't I? I got even, Garfield. I got even. Yeah, how? It took a lot of plotting. First I became a writer, and then here in Hollywood I wrote a couple of pictures for you. Winning my confidence, huh? Then came the big break, body and soul. Me directing you in a fight picture. Yeah, go on. Well, remember those scenes where Jackie Marlowe was beating the pants off you? 
Ross and I still carry the bruises. Well, that's revenge, brother. That's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Bob. Anytime you want revenge by letting me work under your direction, just let me know. But I'm warning you, I'll enjoy it as much as you will. That's a deal. Good night, Johnny. Good night, Bob. Good night, everyone. And good night to you, John Garfield and Robert Rawson. Remember next week, Ray Milland and screen director Lewis Allen. Body and Soul was presented through the courtesy of Roberts Productions, producers of Force of Evil, starring John Garfield. Robert Rosson's latest production for Columbia release is All the King's Men, based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. John Garfield will soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox production, The Big Fall. Included in tonight's cast were Barbara Eiler, Gail Bonney, Wally Mayer, Bill Conrad, Steve Dunn, Sarah Selby, Jerry Hausner, Ralph Moody, Hans Conried, and Dan Riss. Body and Soul was adapted for radio by Richard Allen Simmons, and original music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. Screen Director's Playhouse is produced by Howard Wiley, with dramatic direction by Bill Karn. Portions of the program were transcribed. This is Jimmy Wallington speaking, inviting you to listen again at this same time next week when we present Screen Director's Playhouse, star Ray Milland, production The Uninvited, director Lewis Allen. How would you like to be called by Victor Mature and Linda Darnell and be offered a chance to win $26,300 worth of prizes? Sunday may be your lucky day to win, so tune in Hollywood Calling Sunday on NBC. You may talk to Victor Mature and Linda Darnell and win the film of Fortune Jackpot Sunday on Hollywood Calling. Stay tuned for Bill Stern on the Sports Newsreel on NBC. John Garfield reprising his role from the 1947 film Body and Soul. That was Screen Director's Playhouse from November 11, 1949. A childhood bout of scarlet fever weakened Garfield's heart, and it's been said that the strain of testimony during the Red Scare led to his death at the age of 39. Next week, we're going to hear The Uninvited from Screen Director's Playhouse. In the meantime, The Man Called X is next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Herbert Marshall 
was born into a London-based family of actors, and as a child he saw the downside of the profession, said that he resisted going into it, and although he did vow never to pursue an acting career, Marshall did eventually take to it because he, as he put it, didn't know how to do anything else. During trench warfare on the Western Front in World War I, Marshall was shot in the knee by a sniper. It was a wound that eventually cost him his leg. Eventually, he decided that he wanted to return to acting, and he learned how to use a prosthetic leg, managing to walk with only a slight limp. During the 1930s, Marshall starred in a bunch of major films, ranging from romance to suspense. On radio, he was Ken Thurston, the man called X. And at hand is an episode called Written in Sand. It comes to us from November 9th, 1947. By transcription, you're twice as sure with two great names, Frigidaire and General Motors. Frigidaire presents Herbert Marshall as the man called X. Wherever there is mystery, intrigue, romance, in all the strange and dangerous places of the world, there you will find the man called X. Twice as sure with two great names, Frigidaire and General Motors. For Frigidaire is made only by General Motors. And it is this association of experience with experience, of skill with skill, that makes Frigidaire America's favorite refrigerator. Remember this when you choose your new refrigerator. Remember that millions of Frigidaires in millions of American kitchens have established Frigidaire's reputation for complete dependability for lasting satisfaction. Yes, you're twice as sure with two great names. For Frigidaire is made only by General Motors. No one else can make a Frigidaire. And now Frigidaire presents Herbert Marshall as Ken Thurston, the man called X. Ken Thurston, care of the Bureau, son. Imperative, you come to Algeria immediately. My assistant, Benali Yassaf, will meet you at Nadig. In old Roman ruins here, have found thing we talked of once in Casablanca. Believe the peace of the entire world may be threatened if this thing falls into the wrong hands. If you fail to find me, then look for Dalaf. It's signed Dr. Webb. Well, Chief? Well, what's he mean, Ken? Thing we talked of once in Casablanca. It's something he was planning to look for in Algeria after the war. He was in British Army intelligence then, but he had been an archaeologist. Yes, but what the Sam Hill could be buried in an old Roman ruin that had threatened the peace of the world? I don't know, Chief. But Webb thinks it was plenty important for him to find the thing before anybody else did. Ken, I know Webb's a friend of yours, but I don't see how this affects us, the Bureau. Chief, a lot of the food for all France comes out of Algeria. Yes, Ken, you're right. With Europe starving and this country trying to help feed them, no time to have any supply of food cut off. Ah. And one thing we don't need in this shaky world is another hot spot like, well, like Palestine. But, Ken, Algeria, that sounds pretty far-fetched. Sure it does. Sounded the same way in 1914, about a little town in Serbia. But in the next four years, because of that town, over 100,000 Americans died. Chief, I'm going to Algeria. Algeria. <laughs> 
is no more than a day and a half since I sent you the message from Ayn Sefra. Truly, Thurston Effendi, you have come with the speed of the wind. Is uh, Dr. Webb here in Nadi? No, Effendi. Our camp is on the desert by the old ruins of Timbuk, ten kilometers from town. I have camels waiting to take us there. Good. Then let's get started. Oh, you are a man of quick decision. I believe Dr. Webb counts on that. Come with me, Effendi. Oh, I say, though, this is a bit of a surprise. Huh? Thought I heard a plane come in. Hope you'll pardon my barging in. Bit unusual, you know, two foreigners in Nardig. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. My name's Ken Thurston. Uh, Llewellyn, George Llewellyn. Happy to know you, old boy. Over from London? No, from the States. An American, I say you are a long way from home. Well, we both are. Why oh, live up in Algiers? I run an export business. I say, suppose we crack open a bottle of something. Nothing else to do here, you know. I'd like to, but uh, we're just leaving for the Timbuk ruins. Oh, now, really, can't do that. It's nearly dark. Man might run into this, this Arab bandit who's been prowling around. What's his name? Colom Bechar. Colom Bechar. You uh, seem to have heard of the man yourself. Oh, even the vultures have heard of him. But you are mistaken in two things, Effendi. Oh, really? What do you mean? Colom Bechar is not an Arab. He is a Kabyle from the hill country. Oh. Nor is he a bandit. He is something... A great deal worse. Oh, now, son of a thousand devils. Just here we stop, brother of a turtle. Oh, now, up! Thurston Effendi, we have arrived. Yeah. Yeah, something's gone wrong at this camp, yourself. Look at that tent. Why, yes, the ropes are cut. It lies up on the ground. My word, appears somebody's really made a mess of things around here. Uh, Dr. Webb? Dr. Webb? Never mind, Mr. Llewellyn. Webb won't answer. Oh, I say. Hold the flashlight, yourself. Oh, I say. Wheresoever a man may be, death shall overtake him, though he hide in lofty towers. Mechtub, it is written. Only in Webb's case, it was written on his back with a bronze knife. Oh. Ever seen one like this before? Yes, Thurston Effendi. Such knives are made by the people of the hill country, the Kabyle. That's what I thought. Seen them in bazaars in Tangier and Tunis. Wicked-looking little instrument. By the way, yourself, you... You're not an Arab, are you? No, Effendi. I am a Kabyle. Pardon, monsieur. Oh, I say, now, really, this is too much. Do not move in the name of the Republic. So that's it. Oh, the Foreign Legion. Now, Capitaine, all is well. I have them covered. Good, gentlemen, I order you hold and desist in the name of the great white father in Paris. Pagan Zelschman, on now. Whatever is going on has got to stop him. Mr. Thurston. Nice uniform, Pagan. Where'd you steal it? But I didn't. I only bar... <clears throat> Detachment, retire ten paces and look for clues. Something. No, we won't get it then. I shall keep everyone covered. That's a cheerful prospect. Mr. Thurston, you got to help me shake this little character. He thinks I'm a captain, and he's not only follows me around like a bloodhound, he's also a nuisance. Well, why don't you let him be captain a while? Why, because I, uh, because I say, maybe I could. It's very stupid. Hey, you, look, I want to talk to you. Well, yourself, with Dr. Webb gone, I'd better try to find Dalla now. Dalla? Oh. The name seems to be familiar. Uh, seems I've heard of a dancer by that name. A girl up in Algiers. Dala Effendi is the most beautiful girl in North Africa. Well, maybe I ought to go to Algiers. Good idea. And if you have an extra seat in the plane, I'd like to go along with you. 
Okay. I'm ready, Mr. Thurston. Let's go to Algiers. Pagan, what in blazes did you do with your clothes? Oh, I sold them for ten francs. I told you he was stupid. Merci, Monsieur Zellschmidt. <laughs> I think of it. I am a captain with two uniforms. Ah, brave new world. Uh, and now, Mr. Thurston, if you would be so kind as to lend me one of your extra suits. What extra suits? Huh? You don't mean? Oh, no. Mr. Thurston, you can't let me go running around Algiers with nothing on but my ABC. But, Mr. X, I'll be the laughing stock of Algiers walking the streets in a white nightgown. Hey, gone. All the natives wear things like that. Now, get on up to the Casbah, see if you can locate Dalla. When you find her, come back here at the hotel and let me know where she lives. You got it? Hanging clear down to the ground, stepping on a hem every ten feet and falling flat in my face. Well, you can stand around if you want until somebody recognizes you. In the Foreign Legion, they only shoot deserters. Huh? Mr. Rex, which way is the Casbah, huh? And so I walked on and on. Mr. X, up one dark sinister alley after another. Mile after mile through the Casbah, risking my life, facing terrible dangers on every side. Pagan, did you find Della? But I'm coming to Yes that. or no? Oh, I'm disillusioned. All the way back there, I, I kept thinking you would say, Pagan, you would say, you have risked your life in my service. Here. Here is a thousand francs. Pagan, something's been turned loose around here that a pretty smart man thought might threaten the peace of the entire world. I haven't got a lot of time to waste. Did you find out where that girl lives? Huh? Oh, sure, I found out. Mr. Thurston, maybe I could have 200 francs. All huh? right, it's quicker than trying to bargain with you here. Then maybe only a hundred and... Mr. X! You can faint later. Now, where is she? Where is she? Mr. X, come with me to the Casbah. a moment, we continue with Frigidaire's Man Called X, created by J. Richard Kennedy. This is Wendell Niles speaking. Think for a moment how you would design a new electric range. Well, Frigidaire engineers asked for the opinion of hundreds of women just like you. That's how they were able to match your ideas so closely. Knowing you have an eye for beauty, they gave the new Frigidaire electric range modern, free-flowing lines, gave it a finish of sparkling white porcelain and rich chrome touched here and there with a golden gleam. They knew you wanted speed in your cooking. So this new Frigidaire electric range has radiant tube units that start getting hot the instant you turn the switch. The big oven is so fast heating, it's up to baking temperature in just five and one-half minutes. Yes, and Frigidaire engineers knew you'd welcome anything to make cooking easier. So just see all these work-saving features. A deep well cooker that cooks a complete meal. A broiler that's waist-high to save souping. Automatic time and temperature controls. Most exciting of all, an automatic oven control that cooks an oven meal while you're away from home. Actually turns the oven on and later turns it off all by itself. Remember how Frigidaire engineers designed the new Frigidaire electric range to give you all the advantages you want. And remember, you're twice as sure with two great names. For Frigidaire is made only by General Motors. 
now to continue with Frigidaire's Man Called X, starring Herbert Marshall. I am Dalla, Monsieur Perth. And before you comment on the unusual combination of brown skin with blue eyes, I might tell you my father was French, my mother a cabaille. Sit down, please. Thanks. Matter of fact, I was only going to say you're, uh, you're very lovely. Merci. And uh, is that why you came to see me? It might have been if I'd known about it before. But let's just say Dr. Webb sent me. You mean, of course, while he was still alive. Mm. You traveled pretty fast in Algeria. You knew him then? I met him here in Algiers. He was sent to me by a friend. Did he tell you what he was looking for? Yes. And they found it. Would have been better off if he had not. Donna, it wouldn't by any chance be the seal of Bukail. The seal? Yeah. And he told me to come to you. You know a great deal, Monsieur Burton. Perhaps too much. You have heard everything, Benali. Yes, mademoiselle. I have heard everything. Good evening, Mr. Thurston. Well, yourself, I thought I left you in Nardig. If the wind goes where it wishes, may not a man do the same. What is to be done, Benali? Do not forget the friend, Dr. Webb. There is only one course. In the morning, he shall be taken to the hill country. Maybe I'll make some choice about that myself, yourself. I have taken the liberty of making a choice for you already. Oh? It's Mila. Monsieur Thurston, you have known Benali Yesef as a driver of camels. It is well that you know now he is the chief of all the cabals. Out there in the hills, his word is the law for a million people. to like this so good, Mr. X. At least 24 hours now we've been prisoners in this little room. What gives you the idea we're prisoners, Pagan? <laughs> if we're not, then why doesn't something happen? Isn't this Yusuf fellow the head boss of all those people? All right, then. Relax. If Yusuf's right, we won't have to wait very much longer now. Wait, wait. That, that's all you have been saying. Mr. Thurston, I think I'm going to scrum out of the joint. Sure, go ahead. Of course, if you do manage to get out of these hills, you'll probably still be shot as a deserter. But I didn't join the Foreign Legion. <laughs> you see, I was on this boat and I got kicked. I mean, I disembarked very suddenly at Algiers. Then I, I, I borrowed that uniform and he started out to... He's first and offended, just as I told you he would. He's out here in the Great Hall now. All right, yourself. Let's go. You have a gun, Effendi. Yeah. Straight ahead? Yes. Come with me, please. I say to you, the time is now. For a thousand years we have lain in the hills and waited... Shivering before the earth fires, led by old men with water in their veins. The time is now! Colombachar, one has come for you, Colombachar. Well, so the daring Monsieur Thurston has come to the hills, walked into the lion's den. Colombachar, I'm taking you back to Algiers. So, you hear this man? He comes to take me a prisoner to Algiers. He comes to destroy your leader, me, who will bear the seal of Bukail. What say you to that? And what do you say, Monsieur Thurston? I'm taking you back to Algiers, Bichar. Men of Kabyl, men of Kabyl, silence. I am your chief. The light of your own council fires you have made me so. And I say to you, 
The Colombecha lies. Ah. He does not possess the seal and never will. His words bring only evil to the hills. Let no hand be raised to help him. This I command you. He is your prisoner, Mr. Thurston. Highway. 60 miles an hour, this car hands like a billiard table. How much farther to old years, Mr. Thurston? All around 12 or 14 miles, Pagan. Maybe our friend Bechan knows exactly. Yes, I do. And I would suggest you slow down for this next curve. Ah, what for? It's a cinch. I can do it with one hand tied. Hey, there's a truck parked across the road. It's a roadblock. Jam on those brakes, Pagan. This is why I told you to slow down. Hey, look. A whole gang of stick-ups. The men with the rifles take their orders from me. I had no intention of going to Algiers, at least not under escort. I'll take your gun now, Monsieur Thurston. At ten to one odds, I'm not going to argue here. Merci, Monsieur. Don't shoot me again. I'll pay you all my money. A hundred francs. All right, two hundred francs. Pagan, come off under that dashboard and shut up. But I can't, Mr. X. I'm dead. They got me. Those shots would have smashed the carburetor. From here on, we walk. Let's go. But, but... It's only 14 miles to Algiers. Oh. Hello, Dalla. Ken. Monsieur Zeltmitt. Nobody answered the door downstairs, so we came on up. Were you expecting somebody else? No. Can no. We... I heard someone on the stairs. I did not know who it was. Oh, I see. Yasef turned Colum Besha over to us. He escaped while we were bringing him in. Yes, I know. That's why we lost no time coming here. One thing we can't do is to let Bechar get a hold of the seal. The man who holds the seal of Bukail can command the Kabyles to his wishes, Ken. Yeah. Yes, it's the old symbol of unity in the hill tribes, isn't it? Lost since the days of the Roman conquest. Until Dr. Webb dug it up. They still believe in it, Ken. They would still follow the seal. The selfish, greedy ones, at least. The others, they would be drawn in. Again, civil war, death, disease, starvation here, and famine in France. And that's what Colombecha was planning. That's why he murdered Dr. Webb. Yes, Ken. Yes. All right, Bechar, come out of there with your hands up. You're covered. The situation seems to be reversed again, Monsieur Thurston. Permanently this time. Can I try to think of some way to tell you he was hiding here? Yeah, I got the idea. All right, search him, Pagan. Well, I'll be only too glad. Oh, no, you don't. Look out, Dalla. If you shoot, you'll kill her. I'm getting out of here. Let me go. You haven't got a chance? Let me go. All right, I will let you go. He knocked her out, Mr. Rex. Got away. Look, see anything out of the window? I don't know. No? Uh, Nothing yet. No, it's all right, Dalla. Take it easy. Okay. Hey, hey, there he goes, Mr. Thurston. What? What? Can I shoot? No, Pagan. He didn't get away. Was there? He's in there? Yes, yes, darling. Oh, no. <laughs> Pagan, go down, find the commanding officer. Tell him I'll talk to him later. Okay, Mr. Thurston. And say, what about that George Llewellyn guy, too? Oh, huh? he's just an old busybody with too much time on his hands. You mean, I, I mean that... On your way, Pedro. How do you feel, Dan? Oh, I'm 
Oh, I'd know. Why'd you do it? Why'd you risk your life to get mixed up in this thing? Ken, I could not let Petra have the seal. It is here, you know. Dr. Webb, he gave it to me. There was no one he could trust. He was afraid to keep it in camp. Yeah, I thought you had it. There wasn't any other reason for Webb telling me to find you. But there's more to it than that, Della. I told you my mother was a cabal, Ken. The hill people, they are my people. They have found a way of life that is good. They've learned to raise crops and sheep, to sing in the village at night. Colombe would have given them only the sound of war in place of that. I have heard the sounds, Ken. Yes, so have I. You said the seal was here, Dollar. Yes. I hid it here on the charcoal brazier. There. It holds too much power for any man to destroy it. Mm. Carved in obsidian, inlaid with gold. Huh. That's all there is to it. And a thing like that is the price of death. The price of peace is even higher, Ken, I think. What do you mean? Columbia was my brother. Dollar. Uh, the price of peace. How many times will that price be paid? How often has the world said never again and solemnly written the words in the sand? And how many times has the world stood by while the storm blew the words away? Must they always be lost, forgotten? Are they being forgotten again, now? Frigidaire star Herbert Marshall will return in just a moment. The Man Called X is presented each week with the best wishes of your Frigidaire dealer. We invite you to come in and learn about the famous line of Frigidaire electric refrigerators, electric ranges, electric water heaters, home freezers, the new Frigidaire automatic washer, electric dryer, electric ironer, and a wide variety of refrigerating and air conditioning equipment for homes, farms, stores, offices, and factories. <laughs> Our Frigidaire star, Herbert Marshall. Thanks for being with us. Friends, there are millions of people in this world who need food. Men and women and children who must have food if they are to go on living. So let's all of us do all we can to help them by saving wheat and saving meat. Now, next week, our story is called Journey to Xenophon. And if you know where the island of Xenophon is... Well, you're way ahead of me. Anyway, we have a real thriller lined up for you, and uh, Leon Belasco, of course, will be along to complicate matters. So join us, won't you, when next I return as the man called X. Good night. Frigidaire's Man Called X is directed by Jack Johnstone with music composed and conducted by Johnny Green. Tonight's story was written by Les Crutchfield. So until next week, same time, same station, this is Wendell Niles speaking for Frigidaire made only by General Motors. All characters and incidents used on this program are fictitious. 
Any resemblance to actual persons or incidents is purely coincidental. The Man Called X, starring Herbert Marshall, came to you by transcription and returns next week at this same time over these same Columbia stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And there you have Herbert Marshall as the man called X. That was written in sand from November 9th, 1947. Herbert Marshall knew how fragile peace could be as an amputee because of his wounds in World War I. He worked for the rehabilitation of injured troops, especially aiding amputees, during World War II. Candy Matson is next here on Skywave Audio Theater. In 1949, Monty Masters created a radio detective series. He was planning to star in it himself, but his mother-in-law talked him into changing the detective to a female, and his mother-in-law may have had a particular actor in mind for that role, her daughter, Monty Masters' wife, Natalie. The series was notable for having a strong female lead who had the same touch of cynicism as her male colleagues. Here's Natalie Masters as Candy Matson in The Devil in the Deep Freeze from November 11th, 1949. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. Got an old corpse kicking around you want identified? Know of any good murders you want solved? We've got just the girl for you. Her name is Candy Matson. Mighty cute, too. She fills out a size 12 suit to just the right proportions. Soft blonde hair, two sparkling blue eyes, and all in all, she looks as though she might have stepped right off a Varga calendar. And what's more, she's a private eye. You scoff? You ridicule? I'll let you see for yourselves. Listen. She's talking on the phone right now. Hello, Candy Matson. Hello, Miss Matson. I'm afraid you don't know me. That makes it even. You don't know me. Let's go from there. I've read about you in the papers, Miss Matson. You handle confidential cases. That's right. However, there's a little matter of a fee involved. Yes, yes, I know. I can pay. That's item number one. Now to item number two. What's the confidential case? I can't possibly tell you on the phone, Miss Matson. I said it was confidential. Mm. Okay. Where do you want to talk? I am the proprietor of a restaurant, the Charlemagne in North Beach. Oh, yeah. I ate there once. Oh, that's nice. No, it wasn't. I didn't like the food. Oh. However, I'll overlook it. Do you want to talk in about an hour? That will be fine, Miss Matson. Good. And your name would be... Martinello. Carlo Martinello. Okay, Mr. Martinello, and uh, have some ink in your pen. It costs money just to talk. I probably sounded rough and commercial, but you have to be in this racket. Most people look on a private eye as a musician. They invite you to a party and expect you to bring your harp for free. But uh-uh, I learned the hard way a long time ago. So now they pay in advance and take their chances later. That's the way it was with this Martinello. I was at home in my penthouse on Telegraph Hill out on the porch taking a sun bath when the phone rings and it's this Carlo character. That part was all right because I can always use new customers. 
But what made me mad was the fact that I had to stop listening to the 49ers belt the bejabers out of the Cleveland Browns at Keysar Stadium. But I followed through and uncovered a couple of very done-in bodies along the way. Do you like the grotesque in your whodunit? Then follow me and we'll tiptoe lightly through the tibbets, the ponds, and the bacalonies. Because part of the story unfolds at the opera house. Reluctantly, I dressed into something Charlemagne-ish, turned off the 49ers Cleveland game, and went down to talk to Martinello. His place was typical. Located on Powell Street, a garish neon sign, and as you walked in, the air place was air-conditioned by Eau de Garlic. Yes, miss. You wish a table? I wish a table, yes. With the right party, I'm looking for the owner. I am the owner. I am Candy Matson. Oh, Miss Matson. Walk this way, please. If I could walk that way, I'd revive vaudeville. Pardon? Uh, where is your office? Right over here. Allow me. After you, signorina. Thank you, senor. Here, sit down, please. Thanks. Now, Martinello, what's on your mind? Always, all my life, I have run a very nice, respectable place. Mm-hmm. Until this morning. What's with this morning? I go down to the basement. My icebox is down there. That is where I keep all my meat. So, you wanted some ground round? Oh, no, no. Perhaps I'd better show you. Please, you will come with me. Martinello led the way out of his office and down a flight of stairs. A cold blast hit my face. A musty aroma smothered my nostrils, and if I had had a phobia about darkness, I'd have ducked out then. But I followed the guy, and we ended up in front of a refrigerator about the size of an inquisition chamber. He opened the door, and it was the usual restaurant icebox. Choice legs of lamb hanging from hooks. Potential fillets and thick New York cuts. The box was cold, and I started to shiver. Not from the refrigeration, though, because over in the corner was a man. He looked like something out of a long-lost Arctic expedition. He had a long, flowing mustache, every bristle of which was coated with ice. He was quite frozen and quite dead. I slammed the door shut and reeled out. The sight had staggered my thought processes. Martinello reached over by a salami slicing table and turned on a Mazda, a weak affair that cast dim shadows about the damp basement. Is that your little surprise? Yes, Mr. Matson. That is what I was greeted with this morning. Have you notified the police? Oh, no, no, no. Why not? As I told you, I have run a very respectable place. And, too, that is why I am hiring you. You can get in trouble, you know. Yes, yes, that is why you must help me. Please, please, Miss Madsen, say you will help me. I will pay you anything you say. <sighs> I stick my neck out in the strangest places. Now it's a refrigerator. Okay, Martinello, $2,000. What? Make up your mind. Either I freeze your assets or the police find your frozen friend. Yes. All right. Come. I give you the money now. Now we're getting somewhere. What about him? Oh, he'll keep. He's on ice. Well, this was one for the books. Refrigeration the ugly way. I had to ask a few questions if I was to get anywhere... Such as, like, do you know the guy? No. Had you ever seen him before? No. Who was the last one to close the icebox last night? I was. 
Does it lock from the inside? Unfortunately, yes. I was getting places like Wiley was with Hauser. It was inevitable. I had to take my courage in my hand and go down and look at that thing again. There it was, a male Mona Lisa etched in ice. This time I looked closer, I had to. And as I did, I realized I wasn't going to get any identification because this guy was a study in crimson. Underneath all that coating of ice, he was dressed in a devil's costume. I slammed the door once again and went upstairs. There I gave Martinello strict orders not to do a thing. Usually in cases like this, you have to wait for a break. They come along like a forcing hand in poker. So I went home to do some thinking. As I arrived, there was an old friend of mine, Rembrandt Watson. Hello, Dove. I'd almost given up. Rembrandt, how did you get in? Your door was open, dear. I took the liberty of coming in. Oh, sure, that's okay. How are things, Candy? All right, I guess. I'm kind of bush, though. I feel about as devaluated as a British pound. You look wonderful, Dove. What's wrong? I've got a deal, but I don't know where to start. Anything I can help you with? No, thanks, Rembrandt. If I told you about it, you wouldn't believe it. I've never doubted you in the past, dear. I know. Well, I was just called in by a minestrone merchant in North Beach. The guy is stuck with a corpse. That's about par for the course. The deceased had been sealed in the icebox overnight. I've never seen one like that before. That's the way it is, dear. Many are called, but few are frozen. Oh, get out of here. But, Dove, I just got here. I know, but I've got to change and get down to see Mallard. I'll wait for you, Candy. I haven't seen the gumshoe since before me vacation. All right. I'll be with you in a few moments. I did a fast change, and Rembrandt and I climbed into my car, and we dropped off Telegraph Hill on Don Kearney Street. The Hall of Justice, where Mallard hangs his star, is only a few blocks away, so we made it in about five minutes. Inspector Ray Mallard, homicide, San Francisco police. A lovable, shaggy dog type of character. Very keen with the crime, but dumb with the dame. Me, for instance. If I want him to say yes, he says no, and vice versa. Well, my ever-loving candy. What's new in the private eye business? Very little. How's the legitimate fat-foot racket? Oh, we're holding our arches up. Well, and Rembrandt. I haven't seen you since Pup was a Hector. Please, Inspector, you're metting your mixapaws. Who writes this dialogue? I'm pretty weak, I know. What's on your mind, Candy? A character named Carlo Martinello. Have you got anything on him? <laughs> What's so funny, Mallory? Nothing, except I eat lunch there about every day of the week. Well, answer my question. Well, there's nothing on Martinello. Arrested a couple of times during Prohibition. He was dabbling in grappa a lot under the table. Have you got a case against the guy, Detective Matson? Oh, cut it out. No, seriously. Why do you want to check on the guy, Candy? No reason. Just thought I'd ask. Uh-huh. Well, Martinello's okay. Just trying to make a living. Only thing I don't like, he loves to sing to his customers. <laughs> That'd be enough to bankrupt him right there. Anything else I can do? No, that takes care of everything. I tell you what, I'm through in about an hour. I'll take you up to Martinello's for dinner. You can see for yourself. No, 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 that, that, that's all right. Okay, Candy. Give. Why, Mallard, dear, what on earth do you mean? You know something about something. I want in. Mallard, and, and I want you to believe this. I mean it sincerely. If I knew something, you'd be the last to know about it. He's got something there. Come, love, leave us a while. I hate to do things like that to Mallard. He's been of great help to me in the past. More than once, he's saved my life. 
But on a deal like this, you have to play it close. After all, a girl has to make a living. For the first time in a long time, I was completely baffled as to where to start. Something had to be done about that cadaver in the icebox, but what? While I was beetling my eyebrows, Rembrandt invited me up to his place for tea. He lives on California Street, just down away from old St. Mary's and only a bail bond broker's reach from the Hall of Justice. So I accepted. Do forgive the looks of the place, Candy, dear. I had a meeting my philatelist group last night. Philatelists? The stamp collectors, dear. Well, I know what they are, but I didn't think they could make such a mess. You don't know philatelists. <laughs> Sit down, though. Make yourself comfortable. I shan't be a moment. That's all right. And Candy, dear, why the wrinkles? I've got cause for wrinkles. This chap in the icebox, Rembrandt. There's something I didn't tell you. He was dressed in a devil's costume. There, there, dear. Your tea will ready in just a minute. You'll feel better. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. What are you going to do, Candy? I don't know. I can't leave him in that refrigerator forever. Well, get him out, dear. I hate to think of a corpse catching pneumonia. Oh, excuse me, Candy. Help yourself to the tea. Mm -hmm. How do you do? Rembrandt Watson Enterprises. <laughs> Quiet, down. Who? Oh, hello, Templeton. How are all your steamships? Oh, that's good. What? Could I use do what? To the opera? Of course I could. Righto, I'll pick them up at your office. Thank you, Templeton. Goodbye. Candy, dear, do you like the opera? I can take it or leave it. Why? It suddenly develops that I have two tickets tomorrow night for Tales of Hoffman. Oh, Rembrandt, I don't think I come, can Come, come, Candy. It'll do you good. You've been working too hard. You need a little relaxation. Tales of Hoffman, hmm? Okay. Who's the pal who gave them to you? An old friend of mine, Templeton Woodruff. He runs a steamship to Java and other places Ezio Pinza sings about. I finished the tea and left. Right then, the only opera I could think of was the one going on in an icebox at Martinello's. I've always tried to play straight with Ray Mallard, so I decided to tell Martinello my plan. Miss Matson, I don't think it's such a good idea Good evening, to... Carlo. I want to talk to you. That's what I mean. There's a gentleman here who... Well, you've got a gentleman. That's fine. Three more and you've got a crowd. What I want to talk to you about is this. You don't understand. The gentleman I'm talking about is from the police. The police? Yeah. Oh, hello, Candy. Mallard. How about some scallopini? Well, up jumped the... Hello, Mallard, dear. I had an idea you'd like dinner here tonight. Uh, do you know my boy, Carlo? Yes, yes, we've met. How do you do? How do you do? The signorina wish something to eat? No. No, thanks. I want to talk to you, though, Mallard. Sure. Come on into my booth. We'll share some salami. No, no, thanks. I want to see you downstairs. I don't think the food's as good down there. I agree, but it isn't the food. I'm talking about murder. Once again, I headed down into the catacombs of the Charlemagne... This time the act was a double. Mallard was right behind me. Then I looked around. We were a trio. Martinello was right behind Mallard. This is it. This is what? This is an icebox. Inside you'll find a body dressed in a devil's costume. Okay, Carlo, let's humor the lady. Open the thing, will you? I... Yes. I'll open it. Lovely view of the beef. It's gone. The body's gone. 
Okay, Martinello, start talking and make some sense while you're doing it. Please, Miss Matson. I don't know anything. I haven't been down here all day. Get rid of those arched eyebrows, Martinello. You know something. What is it? Wait a minute, Candy. I'll do the questioning. In the first place, Carlo, was there or was there not a body in here? I... Well, sure there was. He can't deny it. Here's a check for $2,000 signed by Martinello himself. Well, Carlo? Yes. There was a body, all right. Who was it? Friend of yours? No, Inspector. I never saw him before. Why did you call Miss Matson? Why didn't you come to see me about it? Well, you know, Inspector, the police... Uh, just because you were once arrested for bootlegging, Carlo, there's no reason to be afraid of the police... Uh, well, I'll put a couple of my men on the job and see what we can turn up. What? Is that all you're going to do, Mallard? No. Right now, I'm going back upstairs and have some of Carlo's scallopini. Mallard, are you out of your head? Look, Candy, in order to have a murder case, you've got to have a body. Obviously, we're fresh out. And until your pal with the devil's costume turns up, I intend to live my typical everyday life. Don't forget the mushrooms, Carlo. There are times when I get so mad at Mallard I want to scream. I didn't, though. I only scrammed. I hung on to the 2,000, however. I felt I deserved it just for getting my curiosity aroused. And it was aroused plenty. Corpses don't get up and walk out of ice boxes by themselves. But after all, Mallard had a point. There was nothing to be done without a body. So I went home and waded into a stack of dirty dishes that had been piling up. Then I fixed dinner and started a new stack of dirty dishes. Got a book and ducked into bed. In the morning, I had an idea. After breakfast, I went down to the corner of Broadway and Columbus. That's where North Beach does a neat blend with Chinatown. On the corner was a Joe who sold newspapers. I'd known him for some time, and he seemed to like me. Hiya, Butch. Well, hello there, lady. How are you? Good. Can't complain. Who won the football game yesterday? Yeah, funny thing. I got all the news right inside here for seven cents. I get your point. Give me a chronicle, will you? Sure. Here. Thanks. Who do you like in the feature at Bay Meadows? A goat named Candy. What? What did you say? There's a pig named Candy running in the seventh. Take it or leave it. What a tip. I don't get it. Well, what's really on your mind, lady? Here. Here's a 20. You can play it on Candy all for yourself. Well... Do you know a gent named Martinello Butch? Yeah. He owns the Charlemagne down the block. Sure. What about him? That's what I'm asking you. What about him? Oh, he's all right. A little screwy, but he keeps his nose clean. Is that all? Yeah. Should there be more? I don't know. Thanks, Butch. I hope Candy pays off. I was getting nowhere, that was for sure. And the rest of the day went the same way. Dead ends, blind alleys. I checked as many loose ends as I possibly could, but I was still stuck in a quandary. But the crusher claimed late in the afternoon when I got a copy of the late paper and read where Candy came in at Bay Meadows and paid thirty-two twenty, And I hadn't had sense enough to get aboard. When I got home, the phone was ringing. Hello, Candy Matson. Oh, you're Candy Matson. I should play a fanfare. Oh, hello, Rembrandt, dear. How are you? Like an October morning. Every single one of the paws is breathing great, huge gulps of air. What? I just had a facial dove. Most invigorating. Uh, what on earth for? I loved your old pores just the way they were. Candy, you've forgotten. I have? Forgotten what, Rembrandt? We're going to the opera tonight. 
Oh, Ducky, I'm sorry. I had forgotten. I'm afraid I'll have to renege. Now, Candy, you promised. And I don't care what you're involved in. It'll do you good. But, Rembrandt, I'm working on it. Perhaps you're right. Okay, I'll get ready. Wonderful, dear. Pick me up about quarter of eight, will you? Pick you up a quarter of eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and another thing, Lamb. We may have to do some entertaining afterward. Uh, do bring some cash, will you? Mm-hmm. That's the girl. <laughs> That Rembrandt, always stony broke. I guess photography isn't what it's cracked up to be. I didn't mind, though. He's been a friend to me on more than one occasion. Well, if I was going to the opera, I had to start thinking in operatic terms. I fished around in the closet and came up with something that would have done any woman's heart good. One of those strapless affairs that you can't stop breathing in for one moment, otherwise the opera is no longer the main attraction. I powdered, perfumed, pouted, and rouged, and took off after Rembrandt. But just as I started to leave... Just a moment. Well, get a load of the Duchess. Mm-hmm. It won't be Halloween for another couple of weeks yet. Oh, very funny. Come on in, Miller. What are you decked out for, Candy? Something you wouldn't understand. I'm going to the opera. Oh, I love the opera. Any horse opera with Tex Acuff in it. That's what I thought. What's on your mind, Mallard? I've got to pick up Rembrandt in ten minutes. I was just driving by, so I thought I'd stop and tell you the news. News? About what? We found El Diablo. The guy in the icebox? Yeah. Martinello identified him. He was floating in the water off Aquatic Park. Any lead on him? The best. He was Salavini, the second baritone with the opera company. That's all, Candy. I hope you enjoy the performance tonight. A baritone with the opera company. Well, that explained the costume, but it didn't explain a lot of other things. I walked down the stairs with Mallard. He got in his squad car, flicked on the flashing red light, and with a burst of his siren, rolled down the street. I'd have to speak to Mallard about that. All the neighbors had their heads out of their windows as I climbed into my car and followed. What an exit. I picked up Rembrandt, and we drove up to the Civic Center. I found a place to park. A minor miracle. The last time I went to the opera, I had to drive almost to Palo Alto and come back by train. Rembrandt's friend must have been very influential. We had seats in the Diamond Horseshoe. They were presenting Tales of Hoffman, and a friend of mine, Dorothy Warrenchold, was singing the role of Antonia. It was a fine performance, and after the last curtain, I took Rembrandt, and we went backstage to see Dorothy. This is your dressing room, Rembrandt. Hello, Dorothy. This is Candy Matson. I have a friend with me. Oh, do come in, please, Candy. Candy, how are you? Couldn't be better. Dorothy, may I present Mr. Watson? Rembrandt, this is Miss Warrenchold. Delighted. You're in magnificent voice tonight, dear, dear. Thank you. Sit down, won't you? I've only a moment. We're rehearsing some of the scenes in Faust tonight. Rehearsing after a full evening's performance? It has to be done, Candy. Our baritone disappeared. We've had to replace him with a new man. Yes, yes, I know. By the way, Dorothy, I heard you on your Standard Hour broadcast a few weeks ago. It was a wonderful performance. I'm glad you liked it, Candy. I always look forward to those. What are your plans, Dorothy? Well, the season closes here, and then we open in Los Angeles. Oh, yes, of course. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Come in. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you had guests. That's all right. Oh, Candy, I'd like to introduce Rolf Herberts. This is Miss Matson and Mr. Watson. Nice to meet you. Mr. Herberts is our new baritone. Oh, yes. That's why we're rehearsing tonight. I uh, won't take any more of your time, Dorothy. 
I just thought we'd save a few moments of rehearsal if I told you that I don't uh, move in that last scene. I sing upstage. That will leave you free to take as much stage as you like. Fine, Rolf. That will save time. Thanks. Oh, not at all. I'm glad to have met you, Miss Madsen. Mr. Watson. Nice to have met you, sir. Uh, See you on stage, Dorothy. Yes, Rolf. Rolf has a wonderful voice, and he's a good actor, too. You know, I think he'll be even better than Salavini. I've seen him before. Oh, yes, he's been in pictures and on the concert stage, and in opera, too. But he's he's never really had a good break. This might be it. Uh Uh-oh, that's it, Candy. I'm sorry, but I'll have to leave. Certainly, Dorothy. Say, why don't you stand in the wings? You can watch the rehearsal if you'd like. Oh, I'd love it. Come on, then. Follow me. This is all right, Candy. You can stay right here. Thanks, Dorothy. Glad to have met you, Mr. Watson. Also, as we used to say in the theater, go out there and kill them. <laughs> See you later. Where is Miss Warrenshaw? Ah, there you are. Herbert, where's Herbert? I saw him just a moment ago in the dressing room. Well, it's late. We've got to keep moving. Please, somebody find Herbert. From way up in the heights of the stage, the opera house was pierced with a blood-curdling scream. That was no ordinary scream. It was the scream of death. You wait here, Rembrandt. Keep your eyes open. I'm going up to have a look. That scream wasn't in the score of Faust. I punched the button for the backstage elevator. It's a good thing they work fast and are speedy. Once inside, I pressed the button for the fourth gallery. I got out. This was the top of the opera house. The place was loaded with old sets, props, papier-mâché alligators, gold goblets. Then, over on the other side of the catwalk, I saw it. The body of a man all crumpled and distorted. I hit the catwalk and ran over. It was a hundred feet above the stage, and as I looked down, I could see a score of strained faces looking up through the darkness. I got on the other side and bent over the body. It was that of Rolf Herbert. Candy, down here! I think your man just dumped down underneath the stage. Again, I did a Mel Patton. The elevator shot me down to the stage level, and there was Rembrandt, wild-eyed. He came down the elevator on the other side, Candy. Then he cut across the stage and down those steps. Come on, Rembrandt, follow me. I may need help. We ran down the steps and into the bowels of the stage. It looked like a nightmare, a myriad of cross beams of steel for the rising stages. We cleared those and went around by the chorus dressing rooms. There was only one out. I remembered it. A door over in the corner, very seldom used, but it was open. It led into a long tunnel with giant steam pipes running overhead and to the right. This went underground over to the veterans' building. Down by your feet, there's a stream of water flowing in a trough. It's the old Hayes Valley Creek. Our killer decidedly knew his opera house. As we entered the tunnel, I could see him up ahead running like crazy. So we took off after him. We made the other side, and it breaks into a big engine room. As we came into the opening, I looked around. The engineer was lying on the floor out like a light blood spurting from his scalp. Then I glanced up. There was another door. This led into the veterans' building itself and an avenue of escape onto Van Ness. I ran up. Then as we got into the long corridor, I saw Martinello breaking for the door. Stop! Stop, Martinello! Stop! You think I am a fool? I do if you don't stop. Try and get me. Okay, pal. You asked for it. (laughs) 
the first time I'd ever shot a man. It didn't feel good. But he lived. And later, the doctors of law gave him a little pill. The cyanide kind they dropped inside the gas chamber at San Quentin. Martinello paid his debt. Details? Sure, I'll fill him in now. Martinello loved to sing. Ray Mallard had told me that. For years, Carlo had been hanging around the opera house, hoping to step into a role. This season, a director had jokingly told him that if he ran out of baritones, he'd let Carlo take over. Carlo took him seriously. He lured Salavini down to his restaurant on a fake emergency call, costume and all, and did him in. But then he became frightened. That's when he called me. It was worth $2,000 to have me hush things up. But I don't operate like that. He had a hunch I was going to tip off Mallard. That's when he removed the body from the icebox and dumped him into the bay. Carlo had also been at the performance of Tales of Hoffman. That's when he learned that they'd wrestled up Rolf Herbert to sing in place of Salovini. By this time, Martinello was obsessed with the idea of singing in the opera house and wouldn't stop at anything. Right after Herbert left Warrenchold's dressing room, he managed to get Herbert into the elevator and up to the fourth gallery behind the stage. That scream was produced by a six-inch stiletto through Herbert's heart from the hands of Martinello. And that's when our chase began. I hope I never see that tunnel under the opera house again. That Mallard and his sentiments. It was he who gave me that gun just a week before, for my birthday. He said I needed protection. Well, darn it, I do. But I can't get Mallard to believe me. Instead, he just gives me guns. Listen again at this same time next week. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Matson, Yukon 2A209. Heard tonight were Harry Bechtel as Ralph Herbert, Jerry Walter as Carlo Martinello. Henry Leff plays the role of Inspector Mallard and Jack Thomas as Rembrandt. Dorothy Warrenschold, star of the Standard Hour and the San Francisco Opera Company, was heard as herself. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and produced by Monty Masters. With the exception of Miss Warrenschold, any resemblance to actual people in tonight's play is purely coincidental. Candy Matson comes to you from San Francisco. This is Dudley Manlove speaking. You are tuned for the stars on NBC. That took some figuring out. The Devil in the Deep Freeze, and Candy Matson did figure it out, too, all along walking that tightrope in San Francisco's male-dominated underworld between getting along with those male cohorts and being very much her own woman at the same time. The broadcast came from November 11, 1949. In addition to its independent female lead, the series had a not-so-thinly-veiled gay character, very much ahead of its time there in Candy's best friend, Rembrandt Watson. Candy's casual love interest in the series was police detective Ray Millard. The name of the entity is the Orla, 
and we'll encounter it next from Columbia Workshop here on Skywave Audio Theater. Guy de Maupassant's 1887 story, The Orla, has been cited as an inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Chihulu, and it was adapted for radio by The Weird Circle, The Hall of Fantasy, Mystery in the Air, and the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Before all of those adaptations, though, the Columbia Workshop took on the story of an extraterrestrial invisible entity that comes to Earth to take control of human minds. You'll have to get through some scratches to get the whole story, but it'll be worth it as you go back to November 9, 1937 for Columbia Workshop with the story, The Orla. Had been announced for presentation this evening has been canceled because of circumstances beyond our control. The workshop will attempt to arrange for its presentation in the near future. We offer instead a radio adaptation of Didi Maupassant's famous short story, The Orla, starring Alfred Shirley. A little island in a setting of sapphire sea. A pillar of black smoke twists up against the blue tropical sky from the glowing embers and flame-twisted debris of a house that once occupied the little clearing. A few hundred yards off the shore of the island, a ship rides at anchor. The gulls fly in lazy circles around its mast, or with bright, inquisitive eyes and beating wings, follow a small boat whose keel is just grating on the white sand of the beach. All right, make her fast. Higgins? Aye, sir. You and Brown, see if you can find some fresh water. Aye, aye, sir. If you do, fill the jars. Aye, sir. Come on, Masters. Let's see what that fire was, and if anyone needs any help. Aye, sir. Here's a flat. Probably leads to the house. Hasn't been traveled much. Not worn very wide. Phew, it's, it's hot. Yeah. Can't be very far, though. This island is just a pinhole on the chart. Grab that by a bush. It's like 60. Don't I know it? Funny how still it is. There must be someone here. I'll try a call. Hello! Hello! Answer at all, Captain Conflict? No. No, it's quiet as a tomb. Try it again. Hello! Not everyone left after the fire. Well, they didn't leave from this side of the island. There aren't any marks on the beach. Oh, I noticed that too. Here's a turn in the path here. Maybe we can see something then. Yes. Plain kind of quiet, isn't it? It's so so dead still that it almost hurts your ears. Yeah, that describes it exactly. Here we are. Captain. Look. Why like a house and it's burned to the ground. The only thing that's standing is that heavy iron door. It's a terrible fire, all right. I wonder why they had such a heavy door in such a spot as this. Must have been afraid of something, Captain. What could they have to fear on this island? I don't know. Captain Conforth. What is the master? There's not a man over there sitting on... 
Under that tree? Why, why, yes. Hello. Hello there. What's the matter with him? He doesn't even turn his head. Well, maybe he's deaf. Come on, we'll go and find out. Young chap. Look at his face. He looks as though he's lived a million years. What's he staring at? We'll soon find out. What happened, mister? I said, what happened here? Thanks for service. What's the matter with him? He's mad. Mad as a hatter, master. Look at his eyes. They're fixed on those bushes over there. Here, take my gun and see what's over there, master. Yes, sir. What's your name, mister? Look at me. Look at me, I tell you. What's been going on here? Captain Conforth. Yes, Masters? There's a dead man here in these bushes. What? Yeah, shot right through the head. Look through his pockets and see if you can find out who he was. Hi, sir. What do you know about that man over there in the bushes, mister? You'd better explain and explain quick. If you don't, I'll put you in irons and give you to the authorities of the nearest port. Come, speak up. <laughs> You'll have a hard time explaining that to a court of law. Find anything, Masters? Nothing but this little black book. It's a diary, I guess. Oh, full of dates. Used to be mostly about a chap named Dorla. <laughs> what was the name? Dorla. H-O-R-L-A. That's funny. What is it? Now, this fellow here has been babbling about this Orla. <laughs> is the Orla a man, sir? I don't know, Masters. Well, maybe the diary would explain. Perhaps. Here, let me see it. Yes, sir. Over there in the bushes looks pretty dreadful. His face is all drawn up as if he'd had a terrible scare just before he died. Mm, the first entry in this book is May 8th of this year. He's been quite a cheerful mood. Listen to this. Today's been a glorious day. My new secretary and I spent the morning on the terrace together, talking about this and that, nothing in particular. It's beautiful on these May mornings. That widespread town with its blue roofs lying under the bristling host of Gothic belfries. They're beyond number, dominated by the leaden steeples of the cathedral and filled with bells that ring out in the limpid spring air. As we sat there, they began to ring, sending us a sweet and far-off murmur of their iron tongues, swelling, dying away, It's very beautiful, Monsieur Defoe. I like it, Hunt. They say that familiarity breeds contempt, but the more I learn about this countryside, the dearer it becomes to me. Have you always lived here? Yes, and my father and forefathers before me. Oh, just look at the same. It rolls away like a silver ribbon. Yes. Isn't that a Brazilian boat just going by? The three master, yes, I think it is. Probably out of Rio. Rio? I was reading an interesting article about that place while I was waiting for you to come down. Is that so? Yes. In the Revue du Monde Scientifique. Well, let's see, it was on page 14, I think. What was it about? Oh, here it is, I found it. A strange piece of news reaches us from Rio de Janeiro. Madness. An epidemic of madness, comparable to the contagious outburst of dementia that attacked the peoples of Europe in the Middle Ages, is raging at this day in the district of San Paolo. That is odd. I wonder what kind of madness. Oh, the article goes on to tell, sir. Uh, the distracted inhabitants are quitting their houses deserting their villages, abandoning their fields, 
declaring themselves to be pursued, possessed, and ordered about. Pursued, possessed, and ordered about by what? Well, I guess they don't know exactly. What else does it say? Well, the afflicted describe their masters as being invisible but tangible beings. Vampires of some kind who feed on their vitality while they sleep. In addition to drinking milk and water without, apparently, touching any other form of food. What do you make of that, Monsieur Dufour? It is hard to say, Hunter. Oh, probably a simple case of hysteria that uh, sometimes runs like wildfire through a group of people, uh, generally originating in a perfectly natural series of events. Well, I suppose that's the explanation, sir. Who are you waving to? I thought I saw someone wave to us from the Brazilian ship. Perhaps I was mistaken, and yet it... Oh, it might have been a bit of sail flying in the breeze. Yes, yes it might have been. Uh, why, why, what's the matter, Monsieur Dufour? Uh, nothing. Nothing, I guess. A bit of a chill. For a moment, uh, everything went black. Can I get you anything, sir? Uh, some water? Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you, Haunted. It's all right. Just, just a moment. Uh, that is odd. It seemed as though someone were whispering in my ear. Whispering a warning of danger or death. Your eyes are dilated as though you had a bit of fever, sir. Oh, then... Uh, that probably accounts for the chill, and it's it fogged my mind just enough so that I took that story of that Brazilian horror and wove a personal daydream around it. Do you want me to send for the doctor, sir? No, no, it is nothing but a passing weakness. By tomorrow I shall be my usual self. Strange how dark it has become. Dark? Yes, those clouds seem to have covered the sun. I, I suppose that is why it's so cold. Why... The sun's shining quite brightly, sir. There isn't a cloud in the sky. It's really very warm. Is it? I wonder if I am going blind. Blind? No, 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 no. I can see clearly again. For a moment it was as though someone were holding a thick veil in front of me, and then it was drawn slowly away. I'm afraid you're really quite ill, Monsieur Dufour. Oh, nonsense, nonsense, Auntie. And where are you? I'm sitting right here in this chair, sir. Right where I've been for the last half hour. Oh. Oh, yes. That shadow passed between us. For a moment I could not see you at all. Oh, what is that frightful din, that ringing? It's the bells, sir. The church bells in Rouen. Church bells? I don't like church bells. But you said you did. But don't you remember? We were talking about them. How could I? We have just this moment met. Monsieur Dufour. Huh? Oh, yes. I, that is my name, isn't it? For a moment, I, I thought I was someone else. Oh, I think you should have a doctor, sir. I assure you that I am quite all right. Although I, I think I shall go to my room and lie down for shall a while. Shall I come with you, sir? No, no. There is no need for the three of us going. The three of us, sir? Yes, the three of us. You and I and... Oh, strange. I... I could have sworn there was someone else. There's no one else, sir. No. No, of course not. I'll see you later in the day, Hunt. Perhaps when my mind will be more clear. Yes, sir. And if, if there's anything I can do... Those bells. Try to stop those church bells. There is no room for me to think. <laughs>
Daddy. Now, the story of another of my days belongs to you. June the 2nd, I have seen the doctor. He found no alarming symptoms of any kind. There were no warning signals of a lurking disease germinating in my blood or in my flesh. About ten o'clock, I come up to my room. The instant I am inside, I double-lock the door and shut the windows. I'm afraid, yet afraid of what? I lie down and wait for sleep. I feel that someone approaches me, looks at me, touches me. And he climbs on my bed, kneels on my chest, takes my neck between his hands and squeezes, squeezes with all his might, strangling me. I struggle, I try to cry out, I try to move. I can't. I try to fling off this creature who is crushing and choking me. Suddenly I wake up terrified, wet with perspiration. With shaking hands, I light a candle and I search the room. There is no one. I am alone. Come in. Oh, it's you, is it, Hunt? Yes, sir. I was on my way to bed. Miss Harriet asked me to bring up your glass of milk. The one that you always have at night on your bedside. Yes, thank you, Hunt. Will you start on your holiday this weekend, Monsieur Dufour? Perhaps. We were all very surprised when you returned the day before yesterday. Why did you change your mind and turn about and come back, sir? Uh, I don't know, Hunt. When we got to Rouen, I stopped at the library. When I came out of the library and got back into my carriage, then a strange thing happened. I opened my mouth to say, to the station. But I was unable to speak a word. Then my voice returned, and with the words to the station in my mind, I, my lips shouted, home, home. Shouted it so loudly that passers-by turned around to stare at I believe that I am losing my mind. Nonsense, sir. You are perfectly sane. Oh, I wish I could be sure of that. What makes you say that, sir? Well, for one thing, the milk. The milk? Yes, that glass or others just like it have sat on that little table beside my bed every night for the past month. My lips have not touched any of them yet every morning. The glass is empty and the milk is gone. Perhaps you just don't remember drinking it, sir. People sometimes do things when they're half awake and then have no recollection of doing them when morning comes. I, I wish it were so. But who could it have been? Was your door locked as usual? Locked, double locked, and the windows bolted shut. Then no person could have entered? No, no person, no. No, no, no animal? No, no, no animal. Then what could it be? It was a thing. A thing? What kind of a thing? I don't know. If I don't find out, I shall go mad. An invisible being haunts me. But anything we can't see, monsieur, doesn't exist. Can you see the wind? No, no, but nevertheless, the wind exists. Well, the wind. Of course, anyone can understand that, but... Uh... Well, a, a being, an invisible being. And why not? Why not a new being? Why should we consider ourselves the last, the most perfect? Perhaps some being has been created who is greater than us, better than us, physically and mentally. Well, I, I grant that we're not perfect, sir, but a, 
A new being. Well, that's stretching your imagination pretty far. What would you call this new invisible? His name has been shouted in my ears for days. Did I face a quick My mortal ears are too deaf, too dull. One of these nights, I hear and understand. But where did he come from? If there is such a being as you described. Oh, do you remember that morning? That morning we met when we sat on the terrace and watched the boats go up and down the thing? Yes, I remember very well. Do you remember seeing that three master pass, the Brazilian ship, and I thought I saw someone wave? Yes. Yes, I said that it was probably a bit of sail flying in the breeze. But you waved back. Oh, if only I hadn't... Why did you say that? Do you remember on that same morning reading me that article from Rio about that epidemic of madness that had broken out? Yes, I remember that too. Because how people were leaving their homes and deserting their villages because they were pursued and possessed by invisible but tangible monsters. But you don't know. You don't think. What else could I think? You say that there were vampires of some kind who fed on the vitality of their victims while they slept. Didn't you say that they, they touched no other form of food or drink except water or milk? Milk? Who else could be responsible for that empty glass by my bed every morning? But how did such a creature get here? An exile from the land of his origin. He saw my house. Why, just saw me wave. He deserted that vessel to live with me. But his name. He must have a name if he lives on earth like you and I. And is not just a, a creature of madness. What is he called? I don't know. I don't know. your name. What is your name, invisible being? I know you are here. I know that it is you. Before long, I shall not be able to talk to you like this, for you will own my body. The words I will speak will not be my words, but yours. The things I will do will be what you want me to do. Where are you standing? By my bed. By the window, by the desk, or how do you stand in front of this tall mirror? Ah, so that's where you are. Ah, I found you at last. I found you. Oh, this mirror, which was so, so faithfully reflected my face and form, is but a blank pane of glass as I stand in front of it. You are standing between the mirror... And me, absorbing my reflection as a bit of blotting paper drinks up ink. I cannot see you, yet I can see where you are. What is your name? What is your name? 
It's as if you were shouting in my ear, and yet I, I cannot hear you. Say it again. Say it again. Yes. Yes. Again. Tell me again. Viola. Is that it? Viola. Now I know. Now I understand. Now I know who you are. Now I can fight you. Now I have a chance of winning. It will be a battle of wits, Ola. A battle of your wits against mine. And the stake for which we play. Listen carefully, Ola. The stake is your life against mine. Yonder is a prisoner. A prisoner in my room. Are you sure? Oh, of course I am sure. I waited. Waited until I saw the glass of milk lifted from the table. Then I ran out quickly and bolted the door. Yonder is locked in my room with the carriage waiting. Yes, sir. And the boat. Uh, wait for us till ten o'clock, sir. Miss Harriet and George are on board now. And the captain will keep his promise and put us ashore at the island. Yes, sir. He's being well paid for it. And the house on the island. It is ready. Yes, sir. Ah, that is good. Good. Ah. Did you hear that noise? Viola has discovered that I am gone, that he's a prisoner. Come, come, hurry. Down the stairs into the carriage. We must get on board the ship and, and set out to sea before he, before he breaks loose and joins us. Goodbye, Ola! Goodbye, Ola! brown leather arms embrace another day. December the 2nd. What a beautiful day. What a peaceful day. Life is a joy once more. I am glad that I thought of this island, this tiny speck with the sea on every side. We have been here for three months. Hunt, Miss Harriet, George, myself. I feel like another man. As if I had died and had been given a new soul and body. I, I wonder where you all are. I wonder if he is searching for me. He will look in vain, for he will never find me here. The boat has just arrived with our first load of supplies. We must hurry down and see if they have brought any letters for me. I'll see you tomorrow, diary. that I wrote in this diary yesterday. It doesn't seem possible that a man who could be so happy in one day could be so thoroughly miserable 24 hours later. He is here. 
Viola is here. He learned where I was hiding, and he came after me on the boat that brought supplies. All last evening, I had a vague sense of fear. Then last night, after I had gone to sleep, I felt him crouching on my chest. He pressed his mouth on mine and drank my life from between his my lips. Sucked from my throat like a leech. When he rose from me, replete, I awoke so mangled, bruised, and enfeebled. I could not move. What can I do? What can I do? There is only one thing left to do. Hunt, hunt, wake up. What? Quiet, quiet, quiet. What? Hurry, you have not time to dress. Oh, what, what's the matter, Monsieur Dufault? Don't ask questions. Get out of that bed and follow me if you don't want to be burned alive. But I, I, I don't understand. What is there to understand? The old Lord is here. He is locked in the other part of the house. This door is the only one left open. Come, hurry, hurry. Come this way. Where's the fire? It's all over the house. I drained the oil from the lamps and saturated the floors and carpets. In but a few moments, the whole house will be raging inferno. But Miss Harriet and George are in there. Don't I know it? But there isn't time to warn them. Besides, if I open the door to that part of the house to let them escape, the order would escape too. Come. Oh, but, but you can't. You can't leave them to die locked in the house. Why? Why can't I? It is either their lives or mine. Either they die by flame or I die at the hands of the order. Oh, it's cold-blooded murder. <laughs> Don't close that yeah. door. Open that door! Open that door, I tell you! Ah, uh, Hunt, Hunt, stand away from that door, I shoot you down. You can't stop me by force or with more than appeals. I've got the order just where I want him. Poison, bullet, or knife won't harm him. But fire! Oh, listen to me! Uh, reason! The order has stolen my reason! In a few moments, that house will be a horrible and magnificent funeral pyre. A monstrous pyre lighting up the whole earth. A pyre that will be consuming the human flesh of yours. <laughs> and Harriet, and the inhuman flesh of him, him, my prisoner, him, the new being, the new master, the order. Oh, Magnus, uh, you hear those screams? It's George and Harriet. Oh, the order is in that flaming oven too, and the order... Is in that fiery back, and he's dying too. Ah, you see that long black shadow cast by the trunk of that tree? The shadow dances with the flames. Yours is dancing too, Hunt. Your long black shadow is dancing, and mine. Oh, please look. What? What is it? Ah, I have no shadow. Do you know what that means? No. It means that the order has escaped the flames. It means that the order is standing by my side. Uh, like the time when he stood between me and my mirror, and I could not see myself. Now, the order is standing between me and my shadow. The order is <laughs> 
last entry in the diary, Captain Conforth? No. There's one more, Masters. What's the date of that? Last night. The night that this house burned to the ground and we saw the flames from out at sea. It says, the Orla still lives. As I write these words, he's at my shoulder, reading what I've written. I cannot kill him. There's nothing to do but kill myself. And that's the end of the diary, Master. And he did kill himself? Yes. Poor fellow. Do you suppose it was all in his mind, sir? A creature created by a brain that was rotting away? I don't know. What do you think, Master? I don't know. I wonder if there was an oil. Columbia Workshop has presented a radio adaptation of Guy de Maupassant's famous short story, The Orla. It was dramatized for radio by Charles Taswell. Bernard Herman conducted and composed an original musical score, Irving Reese directed. The Orla starred Alfred Shirley as Dufour. Mr. Shirley is one of radio's outstanding dramatic actors and has appeared in many workshop programs. He was supported by Edgar Staley as Captain Conforth, Santos Ortega as Masters, Morgan Farley as Hunt. The Columbia Workshop wishes to thank all its listeners who wrote for the Columbia Workshop booklet and to announce that it will be ready for mailing within the next week. For those of you who did not hear last week's announcement, we repeat that a booklet is being prepared, listing a description of the next 13 productions which the workshop will present, and also a brief history of the program, which we will be pleased to mail you if you will drop a postcard or a letter to the Columbia Workshop, CBS, New York City. Tune in next week for another workshop presentation under the direction of Irving Reese. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. It was hard to get an answer to that question, what's been going on here? From the imagination of the prolific Guy de Maupassant, that was the Orla, Columbia Workshop from November 9, 1937, with its diary narration for the story, Maupassant anticipated by 10 years, the narration to another famous horror story, Bram Stoker's Dracula. As for the sound of that episode of the Columbia Workshop, I think the Mercury Theater from less than a year later owes quite a bit to it in its first production, which was Dracula. And that's a wrap for this time around. Next week, we'll have Dark Fantasy, the famous escape story, Casting the Ruins, and then also The Uninvited from the Screen Guild Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. Be with me then, if you can, for Skywave Audio Theater. <laughs>